Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, November 13, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Reb. Good morning. Josh, we have breaking news. What's that? And it's not suspending a presidential campaign. I mean, we'll get to less significant news like a, uh, a current <laughs> right. South Carolina, uh, well, I mean, a U.S. Senator representing South Carolina suspending his presidential campaign. I mean, that's that's baby crap <laughs> alongside what this dude's done. Uh-oh. I can't the wait to hear the super fan, Josh. <laughs> stop now! Stop fiddling and piddling. <laughs> he wants you to pay attention. The to this. super fan <laughs> who chastises any lesser mortal about leaving early to the game trekked to Williams Bryce, mm-hmm. sat his bahunkus in a seat, mm-hmm. and left Josh in the third quarter. <laughs> <laughs> Good. One. The Finally super, got to use that. Who, who the, are you speaking of? The super fan. <laughs> the super fan of all super Cannot fans deny. said no moss, as the great Roberto <laughs> Duran said in his second fight against Sugar Ray Leonard. We um, had, had no moss. We had, had Defend enough. yourself, super fan. There, there is no defense. And uh, when we made the decision to leave, now it was, it was obviously a, a good game for the team because we were winning, played well. Won the game. Vanderbilt sucked. Well, that helped. Uh, but but the weather was miserable. Vanderbilt's always sucked. They may suck for Vanderbilt this year. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're a bad Vanderbilt team. But they helped make us look good for a game. So Jacksonville okay. State would beat Vanderbilt two touchdowns. Yeah. I'm sure. Maybe three. Uh, anyway. <laughs> I'm sure. So, so continued defense, it, super it, fan. It was miserable. Obviously, well, it former was. Former super fan. Yep. Cold and rainy. It was about 49 degrees with a constant drizzle the entire time. So no tailgating. You're just, I mean, just kind of what you deal with. You, you dress for it. You try to dress for it to stay warm and dry as you can. But, man, by the time the end of the third quarter was approaching, we just said, can't take it. Can't take it anymore. You know, so the entire, wet, the entire cold. super fan family <laughs> oh, yeah. when we gave in. There was no argument amongst us. The, the, the entire super fan family? That's right. Con- I mean, it was a unanimous consensus? <laughs> it was. It was. Every member of the super fan family, Josh, had had enough oh. and made their way back to Florence. Yeah. Uh, one of your kids lives in Charleston. Uh, Charleston mm-hmm. So he makes his way to Charleston. He, did. he meets you there, right? That's right. It's kind of a family affair. That's one which, thing that which, makes it so great for yeah. us. But well, I mean, until you become, you know, you, <laughs> I, I don't know how to be next week or this coming week because you've lost the status super fan yeah. family. <laughs> well, thanks for that. that. Now you're a mere mortal. But, but hey, <laughs> you're the average American do, family. Do Samson I, cut his hair. Right, there you go. Do, do, there I, you go. do I not get any credit for showing up and staying there for three well, quarters? Be, I mean, where were you? Uh, I kept changing the heat on that. Oh. Remote control See, gas logs. I, I thought about you. I said, in fact, I think the word came to my mind a couple of times as I was shivering and cold and wet, and I was like, Not me. man, I bet Ken's toasty warm right I now. I was. <laughs> Wherever he is, he's in front of a TV with a, that with a beverage. Flipping that channel. Oh. Clemson's rolling. Gamecocks are rolling. <laughs> Just a good day. You know, yeah. uh, rainy, dreary, dogs by the side, cup of coffee to my left, um, no drive ahead. No parking. I would say a crowd, but there wasn't much of a crowd no. there. Um, Getting in and out was not an issue at all. Uh, so it sets the table for a two-game um, home yeah. streak. Now, we, now, we've said now, this. Now that we now that we got through that, what is your? Well, I mean, but but you admit that you no longer deserve super fan status. Well, people that stayed longer than we did, and there was a pretty good crowd. I have to admit. Now it did Drunk. clear out at halftime. Drunk. Yeah. Drunk. Maybe. But. 
the people that stayed, I guess, longer than us, they are more super fan than we are. Yeah, more inebriated. I have to admit that. Probably more inebriated and than pe- you are. Then people that probably, I'm sure, definitely. <laughs> but and people <laughs> that actually showed up for the game for the even the first quarter, first half, even through the third quarter, more of a super fan than some other people. I gave I up my super fan status back in the eighties. Yeah. I think Late you kind of earned it. Just just by longevity has given 51 you the opportunity. Years. I've yeah. been going for 51 yeah. years. And about 20 years ago, I started thinking to myself, we're, we're down 58-7 to seven to Florida State. Why am I still here with three minutes to go? <laughs> and that began. Yeah. <laughs> that began the journey of I'll leave when I damn well please. It's my ticket. It's your ticket. You leave when you please. I'll leave when I please. Um, and, and, and sitting course, on judgment of when so- – Josh, did you see that the entire family down there? They left. <laughs> somebody, somebody get their plate number. And call Ray Tanner and tell her to put them on the bad list. They don't get tickets again. It's your ticket. You go when you want to go right. and leave when you want to leave. The, the team you tailgate care. for 10 minutes or 10 hours. Yep. I mean, that's your prerogative. That's you and your experience uh, as yeah, it comes the, the to Saturday. The team won't and, care and they won't know whether you're well, I mean, it's hard. It's hard for me. Somebody texted me yesterday. What do you make of it? It's hard because Vanderbilt's so bad. I mean, it, it really is. It's hard for me to put too much into that because Vanderbilt is just bad. I mean, Vanderbilt's always been bad. Um, but they're really bad this year. Um, I mean, you got you got a quarterback that can play. I mean, you do. I mean, you, the, the travesty in this season, I just said 51 years, I've never seen a better quarterback at South Carolina. That is the travesty. I mean, I've never I've, seen a kid that terrible. can throw it the way Spencer Rattler he, he can. He is so good. I mean, he makes mistakes, but he's kind of a gunslinger. Sorry, Philip. Um, and he, <laughs> I mean, he throws into the tight windows and places. Because he feels like they got to score every time they get the football, but he's the most talented quarterback I've ever seen at South Carolina. Now South Carolina's not quarterback you, but they've had some pretty good ones over the years. Uh, but he's better than any I've ever seen, and he's setting records um, that normally took three years to. I mean, Connor Shaw was a different dude, uh, but he had a lot of really good players around him, and Steve Spurrier coaching uh, the offense. So Shaw, the most, I mean, the winningest quarterback ever, and I guess the most decorated quarterback ever but Spencer Rattler is the best arm talented quarterback that has ever played at South Carolina Kentucky um I'll tell you the way I look at it and you trust my judgment on these things Georgia and Alabama are clearly better than anybody else in the SEC I had a Clemson buddy texting me yesterday you know we're close no you're not 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 to those two you're not Uh, I'm sorry but there was a day they were no no doubt about it but to me in the south I don't know how good Michigan and Ohio State are. I don't know how good Oregon is. Um, I don't watch enough of their games. I mean, you know, I know Ohio State's good. I know Michigan's good. I know Oregon's good. Looks like Washington might be uh, pretty good. But the teams I watch a lot of, there's nobody down here in the good old South close to Georgia and Alabama, and they'll play one another in the SEC championship game for the right to go play for a national championship or be one of the four teams to play for a national championship. But I tried to tell my buddy – He's kind of a, he's not a huge Gamecock fan. He's more of a college football fan. But I said, you got Georgia, Alabama in our league. I mean, I don't know about the ACC. You got Georgia, Alabama, and then you've got Ole Miss and Missouri. And then you've got Tennessee and LSU. It's almost like if you were going to play a round robin, excuse me, you're going to play a head-to-head match, the the best two teams would be Georgia and Alabama, no doubt about it. The second two. West East. Well, I mean, the second two would be Ole Miss and Missouri. Uh Ole Miss got thumped, but they got thumped in Athens by a really, really good Georgia team that played exceptionally well. And Lane Kiffin said it, we just got to go get better players. I mean, if we're going to keep up with that crowd, we got to go get better players. 
The team that I find so intriguing is Missouri. What they've been able to do with the NIL and transfer portal is phenomenal. I mean, they got their General Assembly to pass laws uh, that allow Eli Drinkwitz to sit in the room. They get to incentivize a high school senior, financially incentivize a kid in high school if he agrees to go to an in-state school, Missouri. Um, I mean, they just got real dedicated to this NIL transfer portal model, and they're good. I mean, they're really, really good. They smoked Tennessee. I think Tennessee, I mean, when I went to the game, I said, you know, um, Missouri's kind of on a roll, but Tennessee's probably got better players. Uh, I was wrong. I think Missouri's got better players, and they're the closest thing to Alabama and Georgia in our in our league. And then you've got uh, four or five teams. Kentucky's probably a click better um, than South Carolina. Not a lot better, and the wise guys don't think they're a lot better. There's a reason there's a two-point um, spread of the game against Kentucky. And so, so you, you got Kentucky, Florida, South Carolina, uh, and then you probably got Vanderbilt, Mississippi State. Arkansas is probably a little a little less. I mean, it's uh, I would say the Gamecocks are twelfth or thirteenth in the uh, in the SEC. But if you beat Kentucky and it's at home at night, got a a puncher's chance. And then you roll the dice against your arch rival, and they're I mean they're 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 finding their stride. They're playing better. I watched a good bit of Clemson play um, Saturday, and their quarterback does things. It's a little bit like Stephen Garcia. I don't know why that kid reminds me of Garcia because he does something. You'll go, wow, okay, some talent there. And then he does another something, and you go, like, what in the world was he thinking there? What did he see there? It's a little bit. And, and he just reminds me of uh, of Garcia. Uh, so you've got, you got South Carolina, Kentucky, and this is the difference this week. Normally, historically, and I'm talking about my you know, 51-year uh, tenure as a fan, the Gamecocks and Tigers would play warm-up games. I mean, the Gamecocks would play kind of a patsy. Clemson would play a patsy. And it was all about, you know, looking ahead to the big game uh, the Saturday after Thanksgiving and uh, when they added the 12th game. The 11th game is a lot of times the Saturday before um, Thanksgiving. Add that extra game, it goes to the Saturday after after Thanksgiving. But but this year you got what? I mean, you got pretty important conference games. I mean, they're, they're, you know, you're not playing for a championship, but you're playing for a better bowl game. I mean, the Gamecocks case, they got to run the table to be eligible for a bowl game. Uh, Clemson's play for a better bowl game and, and probably, you know, to make sure you hold on to some recruits or whatnot. But you've got North Carolina coming into town in, uh, in Clemson. You've got Kentucky coming to town in Columbia. And it's kind of a, it's, it's an interesting setup weekend uh, to get to the, um, to the next. But the story of the college football weekend to me is two things. Jim Harbaugh gets suspended. I mean, that's a big deal. But I don't keep up with them enough. I mean, I kept up with that story and – it's a little bit like Houston Astros. I mean, there's a way to steal signs. There's an unwritten rule in baseball and football, for that matter, and it's okay to steal signs, but it ain't okay to buy tickets and put men on airplanes and, and disguise them as assistant coaches for other teams. I mean, that's crossing the line. And the Astros did it, and, and you know, it looks like Michigan is guilty of that. But the bigger story of the weekend is the state of college football can be explained uh, in two words. Jimbo Fisher. Right. I mean, to, for, for anybody wow. to ever suggest to me that this is amateur athletics, when a coach is fired and gets $80 million to leave town, I mean, that, that, there's no way. Forget the word amateur. I mean, we should be allowed as fans to punch somebody in the mouth if they say amateur athletics. You don't pay a coach 80, nearly 80, I think it's $76.7 million to go home. 
I mean, the, 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 it, that's the absurdity of that. What it tells me, Clemson, South Carolina, Gamecocks in particular, because you're playing in the SEC, I mean, you, if, if you're driving 70 in the left lane, you better speed up to 80 or 90 or 100 or 110 because this NIL transfer portal is going to, I mean, it, it's going to create less and less parity in the sport if those teams choose to spend the funds and resources that they have available. There is no way the Gamecocks or Tigers, I talked to an official at the university yesterday, they're stuck with Jimbo Fisher if he's the Gamecock coach. I mean, there's no way to make that work. I mean, there's just no way to, to, to kind of circle the wagons. Texas A&M has a 12th man foundation. From what I've gathered, Wednesday afternoon, the 12th man foundation met and asked the, I don't know how many's in that room. They probably all got cowboy hats on. And they said, um, what can you pay? X, what can you pay? Y, what can you pay? Z, okay, that's $80 million. That's what it cost us to get rid of him. All in favor, I. And it was unanimous, I. Mm. So, so, so in that room, uh, the AD said, look, the program's regressing. It's not getting to a place. None of a, I mean, we believe we should be competing for championships. Obviously, we're not. But it's going to cost us nearly $80 million to put him in the road. And the 12th Man Foundation said, we'll cover that. You keep running the athletics department. I mean, that's just staggering. That's that's another world kind of stuff. And um, and it really, it kind of convinces me, that college football is going to do one of two things. It's going to implode and collapse, or it's going to be a training and proving ground for the National Football League. Uh, this ain't your grandfather's college football, and I've got a lot of theories and ideas, and I talk probably more than I should. Uh, I'm excited about next Wednesday. We're doing a, um, a simulcast with our good buddy, uh, Alan Smothers, the bad boy of sports radio over at Rivals of Store Divided. We annually do this, and um, and I'll get to vent. <laughs> and it'll be <laughs> cathartic for me to kind of have four hours of talking about college uh, football instead of 15 minutes in the morning, and then we delve into the world of, uh, of politics. But the game changer was Jimbo Fisher. By the way, I heard the number by the time you add his buyout, assistant coaches, and other terms of the contracts – and probably some recruiting costs in there for the new coach, $150 million. Yeah, it, it's, it's somewhere in that neighborhood. But the 12th Man Foundation, in about nine minutes, in a nine-minute meeting, they said, we've got that. Hmm. I mean, if you think the best thing to do is get rid of him because the program's regressing, let's not take it out the operational budget of the football team. We'll come up with the money ourselves. You know what that means, Josh? What's that? Up through the ground come a bubbling crude. Oil, that is. <laughs> Texas tea. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so if Texas and Texas A&M are in your conference, you better speed up, my friend, or get your butt run over. 843-661-0937. Back at a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. Rev and I have another thing in common today. We're no longer super fans. <laughs> I've not been a super fan for a long time. Right. Because I'll leave when I damn well please. Yep. <laughs> Rev, has, Rev has maintained the status super fan through many, many, many years. But 49 and reigning, playing Vanderbilt at noon, is when he gave up his super super fan um, status. Yeah, it's, Welcome it, it's, aboard, it's my good friend. Go. It, was, yeah. it was miserable. Welcome aboard. And, and I hate it. I missed, you know, uh, Florence's very own Lenora Sellers put in, scored a touchdown, and, you know, we were listening to that game. It's like, oh, man, sorry we're not there to see it in person because – just love the guy and you know, want him to do well for the Gamecocks. But but talking about this 
Jimbo Fisher situation. And I know you always say, you know, money's the answer now. What's the question? That's pretty obvious in Texas. <laughs> yeah, but, but when we're talking this kind of money to basically to pay a coach to go away, there is no way the Gamecocks or the Tigers or, you know, many schools could could keep up with that. No way. So, so what do we do? I, I mean, mean is, do you have a plan? Do you I, have an idea? I've said this a hundred times. You've got to take what the Atlanta Braves have done and try to figure out a way to transition that into college football. The Braves know they can't spend as much as the Yankees or the Mets or the Dodgers or the Red Sox. They know that going in. I mean, they have the 13th highest budget. I mean, the years it fluctuates. I mean, there are years I've read the Braves would have the seventh highest payroll. It'd be a big bonus year for one of their pitchers or whatnot. But normally, the Braves are winning 100 games a year. Okay, they didn't win a championship. They probably should have won a championship uh, one more time. But but really and truly, the 13th highest payroll in Major League Baseball doesn't get you in the room unless you run a well, unless you run the organization as an organization um, should be run. I, I'll give an example, Rev. What did the Braves do with Freddie Freeman when it looked like it made sense to let one of the greatest Braves ever walk? What did they do? They let him walk. They, they made a decision. Dansby Swanson. You and I were upset because I thought he was the blood and guts of the team. But, but two of their top players, they let walk. Why? Because they know how to run an organization. They don't fall in love with players. They fall in love with, with, with how to win. And they knew, okay, we don't have the money. If the Cubs want Dansby, we can't match that paycheck. So we got to go skin the cat another way. When the Dodgers wanted Freddie Freeman, I mean, the Braves had to go looking somewhere else. They found a guy that, and I told you the day they signed him, he's as good as Freeman and he's younger. You think he's a little better than Freddie now. Mm -hmm. They've got to evaluate talent. They've got to sign players that they can afford, and they've got to just manage that system better than anybody else. The the Gamecocks and Tigers need to be the Atlanta Braves. Now, now Clemson has, and I'm not beat up on Clemson, and I think Clemson fans know this. The one advantage Clemson has is you're not competing with Texas, Texas A&M, Florida. I mean, Florida State can spend a lot of money, but nowhere near what Texas, Texas A&M, and Alabama can. And Alabama can't spend what Texas or Texas A&M spend. But you've got to put very competent people in positions. Here's what I'd do if I'm Gamecock or Tiger. I would build a front office. I mean, you're asking college football coaches today to do things they've never had to do. I mean, they're going to a high school game to watch film and see uh, Lenore Sellers be a good, a good uh, let's use him as an example. You called him a second ago. You send a, uh, an assistant coach to Florence. Well, somebody sends you some film, and you see some things you like, and you send somebody to, to South Florence, and okay, I mean, he might be a little better than people are giving him credit for. There's a higher ceiling here. I know he's a three-star, but he does some of these things that we can develop. But, but think about what the NIL and transfer portal have forced us to do. Not only are we recruiting high school players, you're recruiting other college players. So you've got to build a front office. You've got to find people who know how to evaluate talent. You, you've got to, okay, I'll give you an example. This is, for, this is interesting for the Gamecocks and Tigers. Arkansas is going to probably fire their coach. Um, Texas A&M already has fired their coach. So somebody's going to post that roster. I mean, the Gamecocks and Tigers, as much as you don't like the transfer portal, you got to go play in that world. So somebody's going to have to have money in an aisle. Somebody's going to look at the Texas A&M roster, the Arkansas roster, and say, hey, you know, the Mississippi State, maybe they fire their coach. Now, they got dealt a bad hand because Mike Leach, unfortunately, died unexpectedly. 
but there's going to be a lot of turnaround and shake or turn. Uh, what am I trying to say here? Yeah, turnaround. I mean, there's going to be turnover. some yeah turnover. That's the word turnover. in some of these teams, there are going to be shakeups in some of these staffs and some of these players that were recruited for one system, and now their talent won't be accentuated as much as it would have been. They're going to look for another home. So the coaches at Clemson and South Carolina aren't just recruiting high school kids any longer. They're recruiting the Texas A&M roster. They're recruiting the Arkansas roster. There's this safety at Arkansas that can play. There's this running back at Texas A&M that can play. How do you know he can play? Well, I mean, I heard. Or I sent a talent evaluator from USC and Clemson that knows what he's talking about, and we're going to offer this kid 120 grand a year to become a Gamecock or a Tiger. I'm not saying you got a bargain shop, but you got to be real smart about it. You don't have unlimited money. And the Gamecocks and Tigers are both, and I've said this, and I'll, and I'll stick to my guns. They're both halves. I mean, to the world of haves and have-nots, they're not Wake Forest and Duke Vanderbilt. I mean, they're both halves. They're in the top 25 or 30 programs in America when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, resources available to spend on football, fan bases, the, uh, you know, the loyalty of the fan base, the giving of the fan base, Texas and Texas A&M, Ohio State, Michigan. I mean, those are the anomalies. You're not going to keep up with that. I mean, if, if Texas A&M and South Carolina Clemson want a kid and they, they genuinely want this kid to come to school and it's all about the money, He's going to be an Aggie. He's going to be a Longhorn. I mean, it, but but if it's not all about the money, and if you could put a a decent enough offer, Matt Olson probably could have gone somewhere else and, and made a little more money. But the Braves put that puzzle together in a way that okay, Freeman's gone. We got this first baseman, and we, you just got to run your organization more effectively and efficiently and competently than all the other teams. Texas A&M made a mistake. They won't miss a beat. I mean, think about that. Think about the um, the hole that you dig if you weren't in Texas by having to pay a coach $80 million to go away. I mean, it would be a generational punishment. The football program would take five, six, ten years to dig out of that hole. But all they did was round up the Texas 12-man foundation, and, you know, you got your part, I got mine. Oil's you know, $90 a barrel, I can afford this much. Can you afford, <laughs> yeah, I can afford that much. When can I have the money? I can write you a check now. You know, I can move the funds. Over it's another world when you're talking about that. And if money's the answer, now what's the question applies here, you, you got to be effective. You got to be efficient. Um, the, you can't be the Mets and Yankees. Or Dod you're not going to be the Mets, Yankees, and Dodgers, but you can be the Braves. I mean, you're not bottom feeders by any stretch. The Gamecocks and Tigers don't have to settle for being bottom feeders. I'll say this, if Jimbo Fisher were the coach at South Carolina and Clemson and that same financial contract had been signed, he'd still be the coach at South Carolina and Clemson because they couldn't absorb that much of a financial, I guess, penalty for getting it wrong. And, and, and you know, I mean, Jimbo's not a bad coach. I don't think anybody's arguing with that. But A&M wants to win championships. And they see the program in his sixth year not progressing to the point that they believe they're going to compete for a championship. But I think the colleges that accept this new normal and put together some of these uh, support staffs, I mean, I think you've got to have a talent evaluator. Not, not in the old days of going to high school games on Friday night and pulling the cap down real low so nobody knows who you are. I'm talking about spending hour after hour after hour in film knowing what you're looking for. Can this safety at Nebraska play? Can this tight end at Notre Dame play? And if he's not quite happy, can this back up Left tackle at Michigan, help your football team. You, you got to know, and you got to kind of place a dollar figure on those positions 
and, and you know, go go poach those kids from those other teams. You and I have said uh, one, one of the biggest problems with South Carolina this year is Jaheim Bell, Jordan Birch, Marshawn Lloyd, and Gilbert Edmonds not on the team. I don't know how much better they would be if those four had stayed, but they would be better. I mean, there's no doubt about that, but they weren't in a position because they had kind of gotten behind a bit on NIL. They weren't in a position to hold on to those kids, and, and you know, maybe they win the Florida game. Maybe they're a little more competitive against North Carolina. Um, maybe the odds are they win Kentucky, but, you know, that's water under the bridge. I mean, that that's already come and gone. But, um, but I'm, I'm not trying to be negative. I think Clemson and South Carolina are both halves. They're just not as heavy as Texas, <laughs> Texas heavy. A&M, <laughs> Michigan, Ohio State, Southern Cal, and, and, and a few others. We'll get to politics. Tim Scott announced he suspended his campaign. Um, that will allow some of us to do things we've chosen not to do up until mm. up until now. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. Uh, I guess the big news outside of the world of football, if we'll get back in our lane, that being politics <laughs> and, you know, the presidential election in particular, Tim Scott announced yesterday on Trey Gowdy's, or last night on Trey Gowdy's Sunday night show, that he was suspending his campaign. I think we touched on that a little bit last week. Tim pulled about $40 million in TV ads in Iowa a couple of weeks back. That led me to believe um, that there was a an eventual announcement coming that he was going, I don't know about suspending the campaign. Uh, and that's just a fancy-schmancy way of saying I'm saving face. You know, I don't know what the future holds. You know, God's in charge. And we'll see where this goes from here. But but I do know that there have been a handful of us, myself included, um, that have waited out of respect to Tim to not endorse Trump, to not be 100% emphatically in Trump's corner. There's this lady that will call me every now and then. I have no idea where she is or who she is, but um, she's reaching out to, I, I guess, people who have radio shows and you know house members and senators and uh, political personalities trying to get as many people aligned with the Trump campaign as they possibly can. Um, and, and I've said up until now that I'm, you know, keeping my powder dry, so to speak. Um, but mine, and I think I've said this over the air, the reason I've never been publicly supportive of Trump this time, I was a supportive of Trump publicly in 16. I was on the steering committee in 20, and I've chosen to not be a part of that yet because Tim and our friends and our friendship goes back to, you know, my running for lieutenant governor and him being in the campaign for a while. And I'm, I mentioned about a meeting we had at the Starbucks at the Vista in downtown Columbia. And, um, but now that Tim's out, um, you know, I am 1000% supportive of Donald Trump. It, it'll be interesting to watch what Tim does. Um, I would imagine Tim wants to be respectful of the Haley crowd because he's a South Carolinian. She's a South Carolinian. I'm a South Carolinian. Um, but I'm a South Carolinian that feels differently about Nikki and Tim. And, you know, it is what it is. It's nothing personal at all. But I felt, you know, the Tim Scott administration would have been more reflective of, you know, where I think the Republican Party needs to be. I don't believe that about Haley. You know, I think Nikki's a, you know, kind of an extension of the neoconservative movement. Uh, with all due respect, I'm not. Uh, so uh, I would imagine there will be a dozen or so more politicos, quote unquote, in South Carolina that you'll see sign up for the Trump um, team. It, it's kind of interesting to me. Tim was a legitimate candidate. Tim had a moment where he appeared to get, kind of gain a little momentum out in Iowa. Uh, 
but people just aren't looking for inspirational candidates today. That they're just not. But they're they're looking for somebody that they believe will fight like hell against the other the other side. Dig in. They throw a punch. You throw a harder punch. And that's just not Tim's natural personality. A, a compelling story. A, a good guy. But but I just don't know the compelling story and good guy is who the uh, Republican electorate are looking for now. Uh, I would predict that Trump's numbers. I looked this morning. Uh, the RCP poll averages have Trump at about fifty eight point five. I would imagine Trump benefits more than anybody from uh, Tim getting out. Tim was at about 2-3% somewhere um, thereabout. It does narrow the field, and and I guess it gets us closer to this three-person race that some people want to see whether or not um, DeSantis and Haley uh, can collectively challenge Donald Trump. I, I don't see that. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I can do the math. Uh, and you, you never know exactly where the Scott supporter will go. I'll give you an example. Aza Hutchinson is still in the race. I mean, he's polling at six-tenths of 1%. Mm. So if Aza Hutchinson gets out, it doesn't matter. I mean, there ain't but his immediate family that he can call a supporter <laughs> of his campaign. Uh, big Chris Christie still, whatever. I mean, he's on CNN and on MSNBC. He's kind of on a rotating basis. I'm on CNN today. I'm on MSNBC tomorrow. Uh, we'll go where the Republican voters are. They're not watching CNN or MSNBC, but he's not running for president. He's running to try and, you know, disparage Donald Trump. Something happened there. Uh, I've heard, I'll, I'll disclose this. I've heard that Trump made Christie a promise and backed out. That wouldn't surprise you. Wouldn't surprise me at all. And there's a vendetta, you know, it sure be, seems like there's I something mean, like of course that. It, it does make a lot now, of sense. I don't know that it was J.A.G., I don't think Trump offered Christie the AG's position, but from what I've heard, kind of inside the scuttlebutt, that Trump told Christie, um, you know, help me do this, and I'll give you that. And Christie helped him do this, and Trump didn't give him didn't give him that. That wouldn't surprise me at all if that was indeed indeed the case. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Breeze, good morning. You are on the air. Can I say this again? If it looks like there's any chance, that uh, Trump is going to win the presidency in the general election, or if he does win the presidency, which is a huge if, because I still don't believe that the election will be fair and honest. But if he does win, there will be violence, and a lot of violence here in America. It won't be started by us. It never is. It will be, it will, it will be the bad guys that start it. And I'll, just, I'll, I'll tell people they better get ready. But I'll tell you another thing, too. If people sometimes say, well, you know, Breeze, you ought to let things go. No, if you let stuff go, they'll do it to you again, like history repeating itself. And I'll notice here in Charleston, Mayor Tecklenburg, who was a Marxist, communist, left-wing radical, who was in bed with Antifa and BLM, let the riots happen in Charleston, let people get beat up. There were white people get beat up on the streets, businesses destroyed, and he let it happen. And he was on their side, and there's a good chance he's going to get reelected. None of these people have paid any price. Not a single one of them has apologized and admitted that they made mistakes. Not a single mayor has admitted that they should have shut down their city. Not a single hospital has admitted that they should have done that they made huge mistakes in COVID. Remember, if you had a loved one that was dying during COVID. They had to die alone. You weren't even allowed at the hospital. Do y'all remember that? 
I do. I yeah, of course I, I do. And not a damn one of them has apologized. So if they don't think that they did it at the schools, look what they did to our children. Have you heard one superintendent apologize for what they did? If you don't think that the superintendents and the people at these government schools did terrible, irreparable harm to our children, you are stupid. And, you, and we've let them get away with it. Over and over and over again. A lot of them should be in jail, truth be told. And I don't believe they even believe it. But here's another point. If they don't want to admit that they made a mistake, and if they don't want to apologize, well, maybe that's their arrogance, or maybe they didn't make a mistake, if you know what I mean. Maybe that was their, maybe what they did during COVID was exactly what they wanted to do, and maybe they achieved exactly all of their goals. Well, they did. They sure as heck, and I'll, I'll say it, and I'll keep saying it, they stole an election. They drove us further apart. We hate each other more now than we ever did. We're willing to, we're willing to kill each other now more than we ever were. I said they, they did every one of their goals. They printed $6 trillion worth of money. They destroyed the economy, and I think they did it all on purpose. And that's why nobody's apologizing, because their mission has been completed, and they're getting ready to start with their next mission, which is stealing the presidency one more time. And, guys, it's not going to be Joe Biden. I think we'd be... I think we, it can't be Joe Biden. I don't even think he'll be alive in two, in two years. Anyway, y'all have a good rest of the week. Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Kind of bringing up, I mean, framing the election in 2016, excuse me, in 2024, off what happened in 2020. That'll be kind of an interesting, do the Republicans go there? The mistakes made uh, during the 2020 presidential election. Take a break. Back in a few. Uh, takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. We all try to uh, kind of be our household budgets moving forward and balanced and, uh, you know, manage the best way we know how. The federal government has the luxury of spending money at Dettenham. Uh, but the, some of the Republicans are making it a little more complicated than it recently has been. Uh, the balance of funding the government but selecting some of the items within the budget that they're not crazy about has led to kind of a two-phase um, funding of the government to avoid a possible shutdown by the end of this week. Fox News Radio's Ryan Schmelz is in our nation's capital. Ryan, is that kind of sort of what the speaker's trying to do, fund some of the government exclusive of some of the other um, items they may have more of a disagreement on? Uh, yes, essentially the idea is to take some of the parts that they have made more progress on when it comes to the individual spending bills or the appropriations process as they cause. So you have 12 appropriations bills they need to spend, need to pass. Uh, they've passed about eight of them so far. So they would essentially create a shorter deadline for those bills until about January 17th. So then when the Senate passes its version of them, they can get into the negotiation phase and then get those bills passed until next fiscal year. And the ones that they've been a little bit slower on, that would get pushed to February, I believe, 3rd. So essentially they, they have two separate deadlines uh, for different parts of the government that they still need to fund. But, Ryan, even the parts of the government they're funding are funded at post-COVID levels. Is that fair? Uh, I believe so, yes. And that's kind of one of the issues that they're running into as, as a party. You know, they're, they're trying to decide how much they can actually cut. But the reality is, too, is that they still have to negotiate 
uh, with a Senate that's run by Democrats, and you still have a White House that's run by a Democrat as well. So Republicans are kind of limited on what, what, how much they can, they can cut spending realistically uh, without running into pushback from Democrats. Interesting. Do we know where the Senate stands? I mean, I'm talking about the Republicans in the Senate. In the Senate. They're yeah. not in the majority. That, that's the problem. But do we have any yeah. idea how the majority of Republicans feel about the House spending bill? Well, we, we're not getting too much reaction just yet. It's, you know, this was dropped over the weekend. Some of them are, are still home with their families. So we'll, so we'll probably get a little bit more reaction this week uh, as we start to see that. I think there's a number of Senate Republicans who would just be open to doing a clean CR. Uh, that's what Leader McConnell was supporting before, and that's what a number of members of leadership are, are supporting before. But, you know, they could be open to this laddered plan. Essentially, the laddered plan is uh, clean lifting of, of government funding until at fiscal year 2023 levels uh, just has different dates attached to it for different parts of the government. So I would expect to see mostly Senate Republicans to be on board with this. I think it would be the conservative members who probably would have the biggest issues just because it doesn't cut spending enough. Well explained. Thank you, Ron. Appreciate the, uh, the time and the comments. Hey, have a good one, sir. Thank you. You know, when I had someone ask me over the weekend, because we're talking about $1.6 or $7 trillion dollars, in annual deficit this year. Someone said, how can, I mean, an annual debt that will add to the deficit this year. And someone said, how could we have gone from, because I've lectured, we're, we're spending nearly a trillion dollars a year that we don't have. How does it go from nearly a trillion dollars a year we don't have to 1.7 trillion? Well, it's post-COVID spending levels. I mean, that, that's kind of sort of where we find ourselves. The revenue is not going to keep up with, with the post-COVID spending levels. And I think, I mean, it was an intentional leak, but there was a there was a document made available to the Associated Press um, late Saturday that said um, the bill will fund the veterans programs, transportation, um, housing, uh, energy, agriculture. I think the farm bill is included in in this uh, part of the extension that will get us until January the nineteenth. That's kind of the uh, the laddered part of this. It does not include Josh. Any funding for Israel or Ukraine? And there's kind of a debate. The debate, I understand, within the Republican caucus is, if you had to put money for Ukraine and Israel, or money for neither Ukraine nor Israel, there seems to be more Republicans in the House that say, sign me up for neither. I mean, it's it's become somewhat of an either-or. A lot of Republicans say yes to Israel, no to Ukraine, but, but from what I'm gathering... If they're forced to fund both or neither, they're more inclined to fund neither. Now, now Ryan is exactly right. Um, for those who understand the co-equal branches of government, there's also two houses of Congress. You've got the the House of Representatives that are a little more uh, a little more deficit oriented. I mean, they're kind of more they're a little more of a deficit hawk today because McConnell said he signed up for a clean CR. I mean, McConnell would sign up for what the Democrats want to do: keep the spending at pre—excuse me, keep the spending at post-COVID level and fund Ukraine and uh, and Israel, and that gets you north of two trillion dollars. Uh, I mean, if we sign up for that, the debt goes the 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 annual debt goes from uh, 1.7 trillion to about two trillion dollars. Um, the only the Ralph Normans of the world, I don't want to put words in Ralph's mouth, but I've been led to believe from some things Ralph's talked about, Ralph's giving Johnson the benefit of the doubt. I mean, there's no way this guy can, um, you know, balance the budget in, what, three weeks since he's been named Speaker of the House. 
So they're giving him somewhat of a reprieve to get some of the appropriating committees and uh, get to work on budgeting as we, the 12 appropriation committees. Um, but, but he began, I mean, on day one, I mean, one of the priorities of his was these uh, appropriations bills and the consideration within. Um, so, so, so now because of the threat of a shutdown, you've got this CR that is required to get us through, I guess, next week or the week after, get us through the holidays is what I'm gathering. That that would be an interesting question for the Republican primary voter. Would you be willing to go for a CR to get to keep the government running between now and what January 19 in exchange for 12 appropriating committees to do the work they are required by the Constitution to do? Because it seems to me, guys, and, and I hate to say this because I'm not the biggest fan, but it seems to be Matt Gates and his grandstanding may have led the House in a more conservative direction. Mm. I mean, it, it really and truly does. Uh, I saw over the weekend that Kevin McCarthy's not decided whether he's seeking re-election or not. I mean, if you're the speaker and you get bumped, why would you want to stay there? I mean, it's a little bit right. like Nancy Pelosi. I don't understand it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not there. I don't what perks and, and value is there. But once you've been top of the mountain, I mean, if you're Nancy Pelosi and you've been speaker, and you realize, or, or your caucus says, you know, it's time for you to move on. Hakeem Jeffries is better at leading this this caucus. I mean, to me, you check out and come home. And and McCarthy seems to be more inclined to do that. Now, Pelosi is a political creature. What would she do if she was not in the House of Representatives? I mean, she's never done anything else but spend other people's money. What would she do if she had to go back to San Francisco and help clean up the streets in anticipation for Xi Jinping making his way to uh, to San Francisco. Where'd all the homeless people go? They cleaned up the streets, didn't they? I mean, they spent enormous amounts of money with pressure washers. Um, I, you know, some, some of these, um, I mean, I saw a, I guess you call it a feces extraction machine that cleaned up the crap on the streets. Um, forget the needles and the drugs and the... Um, you know, the state of disarray the streets of San Francisco found themselves in. I mean, there was an enormous amount of human feces that had to be cleaned up, and there were some environmental issues, but they've gotten the streets fairly well cleaned. Um, and I understand pressure washing and soap and water and detergent and, you know, uh, bleach and all these others, but where do the people go? I mean, there, there have been enormous numbers of homeless San Francisco natives, I guess, or people who have migrated to San Francisco. It's kind of a sanctuary city. Um, you live on the sidewalk in a tent. Who cares? I mean, the sidewalk's not for pedestrians. It's a campground. This is the KOA sidewalk, not the not the pedestrian-friendly sidewalk. Sure. But all of a sudden, you know, the, um, the president of China, Xi Jinping, is making his way to San Francisco to meet with, is it Gavin Newsom and Joe Biden? I'm not sure. I know yeah. Biden, but is Newsom going to be well, there? I mean, do you really believe? I mean, think of this for a second. Mm-hmm. So the um, the two biggest geopolitical powers in the world are going to have their global leaders. I mean, I'm talking about uh, Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. Like him or not, he's the president. And you think in the state of California, Gavin Newsom's going to take a pass? <laughs> And go play golf that afternoon? When some of us believe he's actually running for president. Well, I mean, th- th- this is his chance to really upstage uh, a very diminished Joe Biden. I predict that's what is happening here. Um, 
I don't understand. I mean, he's, why is he coming to? Uh, I mean, I've not read much about it, but why is Xi Jinping coming to San Francisco anyway? Hadn't I'm, heard. I don't know. Is there some electric car plant? And China's providing the technology or the battery for the electric car plant. I'll try to look that up in the next in the next break or two. But why is um they've gotten the streets almost immaculate, and it's just amazing to me about what government can do if it's held accountable. I mean, government can function in, in an efficient way, not as efficient as the private sector, but I mean, it can do manageable things. It can clean up the sidewalk. I mean, it can um it can clear the way. For people to walk up and down uh, pedestrian-friendly, you know, thoroughfares if it chooses to. But for whatever reason, you know, the other 364 days a year, they choose to let people, you know, defecate on the streets and live in the sidewalks. Um, forget Woodstock in a big field. We'll just pitch tents right here on the corners of um of whatever the prominent streets in, in San Francisco are. But um, I don't know if you saw this or not over the weekend, Reb. The credit rating agency Moody's downgraded um, or lowered its outlook, didn't downgrade it, lowered its outlook on U.S. government debt from stable to negative. And, and the reason was the, um, I mean, they, they cited as the reason the raising, the, the raising of the interest rates and the political polarization um, in Congress. This will be kind of interesting to watch it play itself out. If I were a member of Congress, I'm famous for saying if I were there, if I were to do to do this, I would probably give the speaker a month. I mean, I I would imagine well, it'd be two months. Today's 13th of November. Um, I would probably if 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 January's 19 is the proposed date to end the CR. In other words, we got to fund the government through the end of the year, January 19. Um, how do you try to convince your your brethren, your conservative brethren, that the pre-COVID spending levels or more appropriate uh, than the post-COVID. Because post-COVID gets us a little, pre-COVID gets us nearly a trillion in deficit spending. Post-COVID gets you close to two trillion in deficit um, spending. And that's just kind of, it's kind of been become normal in America today. It's um, $1.67 trillion. And I said last week, and I'll I kind of stick to this, I think a trillion is kind of sort of supernatural number that people really and truly can't even fathom. But if you begin trying to understand or fathom how much a trillion is, <laughs> you'd, probably, you'd probably try to figure out a way to move to Costa Rica or some of these other financially uh, more stable uh, nations. 843-661-0937. I do want to mention programming note before we take our break. Josh uh, worked hard and scored with Ron DeSantis. We think we'll have presidential candidate Ron DeSantis on the air with us tomorrow. He's to call in at what time, Josh? 8.30. 8.30. 8.30 tomorrow right. morning. Yeah, Ron DeSantis will call in. Nice job. And, uh, Only uh, took six months to make it happen. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and, and I'll say this, and, and I'm not going to say it to him tomorrow on the air because who am I to criticize a guy running for president? But, but you wonder why he's underperforming. I mean, you wonder why right. he, he, he didn't, you know, perform or has not performed as well as many thought he would. You got to run that campaign. I mean, you, you got to dot I's and cross T's and manage. Uh, you, everything matters in a political campaign. It's a little bit like an athletics department or a little bit like a business. You, you got to dot I's and cross T's. And, and you got to, you know, when, when, a, when a radio show in South Carolina calls, 
you got to investigate and see whether it's worth your time or not. And if it was not worth our time, then why is it worth our time now? I'm just arguing that there's so many layers of inefficiency in some of these campaigns. And, and however prepared you think you are to run for president, you've underestimated it. I mean, running for governor of Florida is a big deal. It's nowhere near the monumental task of running a 50-state presidential campaign, and you've got to have real competent people who aren't a part of conservative Inc. and aren't trying to just get paid whether they perform or not. Take a break. Back in a few moments. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. Sometimes it it doesn't take or it doesn't require reading the Wall Street Journal editorial section of the business page. Sometimes you can just get a grasp of where we are and where we may be headed by paying attention. And, and by that, I mean, I saw a couple of things over the weekend on Facebook and Twitter, not, not based in uh, a, a deep understanding of the economy. It's not about the Moody's downgrade, you know, from stable to, uh, what, what did I say? From stable to, uh, what was their word? The Moody's had a word. Somebody help me here. Uh, I don't have it in to, front of me. Uh, negative. Yeah, negative. My, I, anyway, it's it's a it's a downgrade. It, it's a um that they're basically saying that it looks to them like the United States financial situation will be uh, worse in a year than it is today, and they're they're kind of critiquing whether U.S. debt is a good purchase or not. Well, obviously it is at a, at a such and such rate. I mean, if you believe that, that America will never fail on its obligation and kind of kind of the going rate is 3%, you'd rather invest in American debt than you had Guam debt or, or Nova Scotia debt. But all of a sudden, you're looking at the American debt going, yeah, I mean, they've got a bigger economy than Guam or Nova Scotia, but my money's on Guam and Nova Scotia being able to pay back, you know, $500 billion and the U.S. being able to pay back $33 trillion. But, but I, and, and this goes to the G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip mindset that I refer to and I'm telling you guys I mean I'm one of these people that if if given the opportunity to academically and intellectually understand the economy and I'm talking about a bunch of numbers and and graphs and charts or or this other kind of G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip I have found in my life that the more I trust G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip the more I end up in the right place I mean the numbers can reflect distortions and manipulations and then last week it might have been Thursday. It might have been Friday when I talked a little bit about um, the two things that I have always paid attention to. And I guess this is because I was in uh, the trucking business. We built truck beds. Therefore, we were a member of the National Truck Equipment Association, the National Truckers Association. Those were some of our lobbying and representative organizations. But I remember always paid attention to the the number of driver, the number of hours that over-the-road truck drivers are driving and the number of cardboard boxes that are in demand. I mean, that, that, that's, that's not a technical reality. I mean, it is a number. There's no doubt about it. Um, truck drivers are made to log in their hours. Unsafe driving. He drove too many hours and he was asleep. He was, you know, not alert. Uh, so truck drivers' hours today compared to this time last year, are down 15%. That's a significant number to me. I mean, that, that, that's not, I mean, the Fed doesn't talk about truck driver hours. The Fed doesn't talk about um, cardboard box demand. But, but those are, I mean, those, those are integral parts of the economy. Because if Josh is ordering something, 
Somebody's got to put it in a box, put it on a truck, and bring it to Josh. I mean, in today's very um, online economy, digital economy, we don't go to stores. And even if we go to stores, how do you think? I mean, the box wasn't born in Walmart. It wasn't born in Target or the grocery store. It had to get there some way, somehow. Um, I couldn't find a freight car number. I tried to find a freight car number over the weekend. But when truck driver hours are down 15%, cardboard box demand is down 10%. That leads me to believe that there are hard times headed our way. And combine that with our unwillingness to take the debt seriously. And, and even the Republicans, I mean, the, the party of fiscal sanity, even they say, um, we can debate Ukraine and Israel, but we're not debating whether we go back to pre-COVID spending levels. We were going broke pre-COVID. We were just doing it slower. Maybe there's a little beauty in this. I mean, if we're going to go broke, go big or go home. Isn't that the saying? So if we're going broke, let's don't do it at $1 trillion a year. Let's do it at $2 trillion um, a year. Let's get to that number a lot quicker uh, than we would if we go back to pre-COVID uh, spending levels. But we've been fortunate, guys, up until now to have an economy that has some kind of velocity of money and forward spending and whatnot. And Jamie Dimon gave fair warning that he thought the money would run out in September of 23. We're in November of 23. And there are a lot of trouble signs out there about the economy losing some steam. I've always said, guys, the majority of smart people, I'm not talking about people on the take. I'm not talking about people with vested interest. I mean, I understand those people. They're, they're doing it because they're, they have a lot at stake and a lot to gain by believe, by convincing people the narrative is something other than what it really is. But, but if you really try to dig into economic growth since 2008, and the reason I go to 08 is when we normalized or introduced quantitative easing. I mean, that's when quantitative easing became accepted. I mean, even, even the 200, remember the Fed's got about 1,300 economists, 1,100 or so vote Democrat. So there are 200 what I'd call neoclassical conservative, uh, neoclassical liberal uh, in, in the former definition. I'm using liberal in the Jeffersonian way. But uh, e- even the 200 or so of those probably saw this coming and I don't have any idea what the debate was like when they began quantitative easing. And that is distorting the economy, manipulating the economy. But since quantitative easing became a big part of the Fed's balance sheet and them playing such an activist role in the economy, we've had about 0% real economic growth for 15 years. The majority of really smart people who aren't on the take, and I'm, I understand it. I mean, you know, um, if I'm working at BlackRock and the Fed has $2.6 trillion of mortgage-backed securities, I know that's problematic. I mean, I know that's significantly stored in the housing market, but I'm getting a big share. I mean, I'm getting a fee to risk manage and custodian or play custodian to the $2.6 trillion, so I'm just kind of keeping my mouth shut. I mean, I know. I understand. I went to Harvard Business. I understand economics. I understand having $2.6 trillion of the, what, $13 trillion mortgage industry in America on the balance sheet of the Fed. I know that's not a proper representation of what really is or what is reality in the housing in the housing sector. But, I mean, i got to be quiet because I'm getting paid as a risk manager and a custodian. J.P. Morgan, uh, the same thing here. They know, but they're smarter, much smarter than I am about these matters. They understand that that's a broken way 
to create a market or to store the market. But, you know, everybody's getting rich and <laughs> and nobody knows. So let's just keep on um, keeping on. But quantitative easing was was the, I, I guess, Reb, what, what got us to where we are today. And really, really smart people who are not trying to convince one party to do X or another party to do Y. They're just looking at the fundamentals and, and what the numbers show. They believe that since 2015, we've had absolutely no GDP growth. Every percent of GDP growth we've enjoyed since 2008 has been a product of deficit spending. A product of the government spending. I mean, imagine this. What would our economy look like? I want to go back to the Facebook post because this is interesting to me. Somebody put a picture on Facebook of a bag of pecans at a Sam's or Walmart. I mean, I could tell by the price. It's either a Sam's or a Walmart. And it was $21. And somebody put below like, what in the hell? You know, a bag of pecans or 20 bucks. I, I showed my wife this yesterday. She's those, she does far more grocery shopping than I do. And she said, it alarms you. When you buy a, a, um, a thing, that's, that's a canister, a thing, a detergent, and it's, uh, it was $7, and that was $12. We, we've talked a lot about fast food. I mean, Rev complained to me last week. He said, let me tell you what I did. I mean, I picked up to go from such and such. It was me and my wife, and one of my kids was home, and it was $48. And I'm going like, that can't. I got somebody else's order. There's no way this is $48. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is $29, but it's $48, and a bag of pecans is $20. And it's just, it's staggering. I think it's really beginning to kind of um, I don't know this this negativity that a lot of us have. Uh, I, I read something over the weekend about the percentage of Americans who feel negative about its future, the country's future, our economy's future. What would that bag of pecans cost? What would those three to go meals rev ordered cost if the government had a balanced budget? If there were not $33 trillion floating around out there in the ether somewhere, what would that bag of pecans cost? I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that. It damn sure wouldn't be $20. I can assure you of that. But we have created an unbelievable manipulation of our economy where it's just whatever amount of money you thought it took for you to retire, or, or to semi-retire, to have passive income, whatever. Whatever plan you've got moving forward, um, this is when I kind of remind people, mine is to work, continue to work, because I don't think anybody can afford to retire unless you won the lottery or sold a business for millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, because I believe that whatever number you have in your mind, whatever number, and everybody has a different nut to crack. Everybody has a different style of life or quality of life, or they like to do this or, or like to do that. Some can do with less. Some it would be hard for. I mean, it really and truly would. But you kind of know uh, where you are and where you're trying to get. Double it. Whatever that number is, double it. Because the money you're trying to make and save is going to be worth about half what you thought it was going to be worth 10, 12, 15, 20 years from now. I'm convinced of that. I mean, there is no putting that genie back in the bottle. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. There's a big article in uh, Zero Hedge. Now, Zero Hedge would be a doom and gloom sort of site, but um, the Mrs. Institute 
is a place I go read about some of the um, ah, so some of the honesty that they're not reporting on about the economy. Um, when when the Fed, when the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee meets, and we get some of the um, some of the minutes, some of the commentary. I mean, Jerome Powell addresses the public, and he starts talking about the target policy interest rate. Uh, they left it unchanged, what five and a half percent, I think. Um, but but a lot of people are interpreting that to mean that they believe that they have um, raised the target rate to a point where price inflation will run below what it has been running for the last, what, a uh, couple of years? I mean, this arbitrary 2% number that they throw out, I mean, it's completely and totally arbitrary. But but I read some of the Mrs. Institute over the weekend, um, insert the word hope with believe. They don't believe anything anymore. They're hoping that some of these things uh, play itself out. And I, I just think it's, it's, it's a, uh, I mean, it's the example of allowing the Fed to be so important in our, in our economy. And it goes back to my comments. And I've often wondered this, what would a gallon of gas cost? Cause how much less buying power does the consumer have? If there's not $33 trillion in debt floating around out there somewhere, I mean, we know about the M2 money supply. I mean, the M2 money supply, if Josh has X and Rev has Y and I have Z, and and that X, Y, and Z is based on an M2 money supply of $15 trillion, and we increase that to $22 trillion, Josh is going to have more than X. Rev's going to have more than Y. I'm going to have more than Z. Well, I mean, when I have more than X, what do I do? Do I bury it in my mattress? No, and the majority of us do things. We go places. We buy things. We feel a little wealthier than we normally do. Um, I mean, we do understand, okay, wow, things have gotten more expensive, but I got a little more money. So I worked that out. Well, all of a sudden, things are still expensive, and Josh is back to X, Rez back to Y, and back to Z. How do we put that genie back in the bottle? And that's what the Fed is hoping for. They're hoping that bag of pecans goes from, I mean, it went from 12 to 19. They're hoping it goes back to 12 or 13. But what would that bag of peanuts or pecans be what would Josh's salary be? What would an ad on this radio station be if in 2008 we didn't decide to begin quantitative easing? Because we've, I mean, it really began in 73 with, with Nixon taking us off the gold standard. I mean, that, that began the era of fiat currency. What is that money worth? Huh? Depends on what exchange rates are. What do you mean it doesn't depend on how much gold we got in Fort Knox? No, not anymore. It doesn't. So it doesn't have to be connected to a tangible asset, a hard asset, a commodity? Nope, sure doesn't. What, what do you mean? You mean the government can spend, I mean, the government can fund programs that doesn't have the money to fund? Oh, yeah, sure. With what? The debt. Just borrow some yeah. money. We run out, we'll just make more. Yeah, and, and then, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll loan that money to the public. We'll loan that money to other countries, and, and they'll pay us back. And, and this, the world changed in 73, and then the world changed even more, in my opinion, in 2008. And I believe this. I believe that every, I mean, I'm, I'm like some of the experts. I believe that all the economic GDP growth has been based on a false premise of quantitative easing and an activist fed. Uh, what would the earnings on wall street? Here's a better, uh, and this would be a Reggie Armstrong question. What would the Dow Jones industrial average, the S and P 500 be today? If the government was not allowed deficit spend, I mean, what, what, what would, what if the government, 
What if we took the third? I mean, what if we could just walk back to the future? You know, what What if we could uh, Marty McFly and who, what was the guy's name? Professor or uh, Doc Brown. Doc, yeah. Doc okay. Brown, Doc Brown. Yeah. Right. What if they get in the, in the DeLorean and go back to December, 1973 and we live the next 50 or so years void of deficit spending? What does things, what do things cost? What, what does a, what does an income look like? Because we've so distorted and so manipulated reality. And, and I think it's beginning to have c- kind of a mental effect. I mean, it, Rev, Rev would not stop it. I get it. I mean, I, I've heard it from everybody. Man, you're not going to believe what these three-to-go meals cost. Somebody, somebody felt compelled to put a bag of pecans on their Facebook page. I mean, how many, I just think there's, there's kind of a shock to it now. Like, wow. And in the, in the negotiations between the House and, and the Senate, there's really more of a debate about should we fund Israel and Ukraine than should we go to pre- or post-COVID spending levels. And, and, and Rev, pre-COVID was still $800 billion a year deficit spending. Post-COVID is twice that. So, so where do we go from here? How do you not, how, how, are, how am I the only fool alarmed by the deficit spending and where we appear to be headed if we don't constrain ourselves at some point in time? It's just, it's crazy to me. And it goes back to something I've said over and over again. Maybe, maybe a trillion supernatural. I mean, maybe there's a, an element out there amongst us that says, I'm going to never pay that money back anyway. So why be concerned about it? Why worry with it? Why, why even pay any attention to it? I mean, it's, there's no conceivable way that we could ever pay back $33 trillion in debt, so I'm not worried about it. I mean, I'll figure out a way to make it work. I'll buy the pecans. I'll go on the vacation. I'll do what I can. Um, I believe this. I believe that a lot of Americans have decided, probably subconsciously, that there is no retirement on the other side. I mean, if you're a public sector worker, I would imagine that's a little different plan there. Um, well, let me ask you this. You want to go to the end, to the extreme? What happens when the General Assembly in South Carolina says, we don't have the money to fund all these promises we made down the road? I mean, they can't deficit spend. Do they tax the private sector to fund the shortfalls of the public sector retirement fund and, and the health care, you know, that some are paying for and some are not? It, there's going to be, I mean, there, there's going to be a big moment of conflict, guys. I've said it for years and years and years and years. And we kick that proverbial can down the road and we say, well, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll get to that sooner than later. But what happens? See, that's an interesting point to me. The state retirement plan has an unfunded liability in the, uh, what, hundreds of millions of dollars? Uh, it's north of a billion. I mean, it's multiple billions of dollars. I may try to look that up, the solvency of the South Carolina retirement plan. But what happens when... The General Assembly says, constitutionally, we can't deficit spend. I mean, there, there may be a kind of an indirect way around that, but you've got all these retirees expecting all these benefits, and there's no money left. I mean, do you really, as a member of the General Assembly, do you raise taxes on private sector employees to fund public sector employees' retirement funds and benefit packages? I mean, that's a good way to get voted out of office, but but I, I just think we're heading there, guys. We're going to have to make some monumental decisions about how we govern ourselves, and debt's going to be at the center of it. And and right now we appear to be, and I think Carl Icahn. I mean, I've said this before. Icahn says it best. Um, we're all on a party bus. 
We know the party bus is heading to the cliff, but it's a hell of a ride. And if Dave's not getting off, Ken's not getting <laughs> off. And if Ken's not getting off, Josh isn't getting off. We'll ride this thing until the last moment, and we'll either jump off and save the day or we'll fall, fall off into the abyss by ourselves. But that would be an interesting proposition. What happens if states who have a constitutional obligation to balance their budget aren't able to fund some of the unfunded liabilities of benefit packages and retirements for public sector employees? What does that look like? I mean, is, is another bailout? I mean, sooner or later, you can't go to the federal government, right? I mean, 33 turns into 36, 36 turns into, into $40 trillion. I mean, at some point in time, the federal government won't be able to sell its debt. What happens then? I mean, it, it, we're heading to a very complicated period in American politics centered on, you know, our inability to be fiscally responsible. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. The majority of political news in the state of South Carolina, I would imagine, in the next day or two or three, will center around uh, Senator Tim Scott dropping out of uh, the presidential primary campaign. It'll be interesting to watch some of the donors, I, I would imagine. I mean, Tim has struggled raising money lately. Um, had a good bit of money in a war chest, so to speak. I told Rev a couple of weeks back when I heard that he'd begun pulling some ads out of Iowa. I mean, it was pretty obvious to me they had some internal polling that led them them to believe there was no way to get to a, a much better place. I kind of respect the guy that sees the writing on the wall and says, I'm out of here while the getting's good, instead of someone like Chris Christie or Aza Hutchinson. Um, Tim's got a life outside of politics. I mean, he's got a very compelling story. Uh, he's a good dude. I can't speak for Christie can't speak for Asa Hutchinson. Don't know those folks. I do know Tim. There were a lot of us, and and I'm talking about Republicans in the state of South Carolina that were waiting, uh, you know, to kind of get involved in the primary out of deference to Tim. Um, It'll be interesting to watch how many Tim Scott endorsements or or supporters um, go to Governor Haley uh, or go to Donald Trump. The writing is on the wall. As much as the media wishes to disguise this, as something other than it is, Donald Trump's the odds-on favor to be president. I mean, I, you know, I read tweets and I read Facebook posts and I read articles in Politico and TheHill.com, and then I go talk to people on Main Street, and it's so uniquely different one from another. You know, the media is in an absolute tizzy about, we didn't destroy this guy. I mean, he's the cockroach in the Ice Age. I mean, he's, he's facing 91 criminal indictments. And he's at 58% in a Republican primary and the odds on favor to be president per the wise guys. There's not a booking agency in the world that has Joe Biden favored over Donald Trump today. I mean, that's absurd to me, but, but it's, it, it's encouraging to me that America isn't buying what they historically have bought. They're not buying into this, you know, Biden's a, a grown up and Biden's mature and Biden's responsible. They look at Joe Biden and they see a decrepit old man and, and they go to the grocery store and what did cost you know, 50 bucks is 90 bucks. And uh, the three to-go meals that Rev was ready to pay $28 for is $48. Mm-hmm. And, the, the, you know, who's to blame? I don't know if Biden's to blame for all of that. Of course, president gets more. They're a little bit like the quarterback. They get less credit and more blame and more credit and less blame. But it's so interesting to me. And everybody has a right to an opinion. I mean, I'm not trying to censor anybody's opinion. 
But these people who sound so sure of themselves have no idea what's kicking to the real world. And, and I think you've got to be, I mean, I told Josh a couple of days back, one thing you got to be is suspicious of your own opinion. And, and my opinion has always been that I thought Donald Trump had a better than 50-50% or better than 50-50 chance to be president. And I think it's probably significantly better uh, than that today. Now, now, what happens in some of these trials? I don't know. I don't have any idea what the future holds for Trump and the uh, and the legal system. I mean, I think the majority of Americans, I've seen polling, the, the most Americans believe that politics are behind some of these um some of these persecutions, disguising themselves as prosecutions. But um, but I give Tim a lot of credit for seeing the writing on the wall. Um, and and Tim's a good guy. Uh, you may like his politics, you may not like his politics, uh, but Tim's a good guy, and uh, you know he had his day, and and I predicted that he would have a moment to shine. He shined for a brief moment, and then for whatever reason, and there'll be a lot of speculation and second guessing about what happened to his campaign. And uh, the, the the biggest thing that happened to Tim Scott is what's happened to everybody else. They're running into this larger than life political figure somewhat of a political unicorn and he takes all the air out of the room do you think the people that are opposed to trump that they kind of stick their head in the sand because like you said the numbers are what the numbers are all right they say that trump right now the betting odds the polling he's the most likely person to win the presidency in 2024 but there's no legitimacy given to that to that point of view in mainstream media it does remind me of before 2016 remember that everybody got mad because when, when somebody would legitimize Trump as a candidate, he ended up winning, obviously. But at this point, are they sticking their head in the sand well, or what? The, but, but, but no, you got you got a couple of really smart Democrats. Or they have a plan. What well, would be David Axelrod and James Carville. I mean, their resume speaks for itself. You may disagree with everything Carville says. You may dislike uh, David Axelrod and everything he's c- kind of uh, introduced to American politics. But those guys are smart. I mean, they're very capable. And I've never, I mean, every time recently that I've heard Axelrod he says publicly, you better be careful with this guy. I mean, this guy can win, that this guy has an audience. He has a, the public have an appetite for his sort of, of politics. Uh, James Carville is, is on the record. We better find somebody not named Joe Biden or Donald Trump's going to be the president. Now, now Carville doesn't get invited on CNN and MSNBC and, and the NBC News. And it's just, it, it's such a, I talk a lot about the asymmetrical relationship that the GOP establishment has with its voters. It's less asymmetrical than the media has with, with average Americans. And the media tries to convince you that this is true. This is real. This is the way things are. And, and for a long time, we believe that. But, but the media finally just, I mean, Trump really and truly, the legacy of Trump will be debated fairly. I mean, it, it'll be fairly debated. He's been a compl- complicated conflicting and contradictory political figure. He's cut both ways. I mean, there are things about Trump in politics that I don't like, but there's no denying that exposed the media. I mean, there's, I mean, they, they, they sold their soul to beat Donald Trump. And I mean, they're, they're doing it again. They, they have no, I mean, the, the desire to be objective is gone. You know, the, the realities of, of journalism are, are just in, in days gone by. That's not where we are today. I mean, they, they, the New York Times said it is our responsibility to stop being objective and to be opinionated because this guy's dangerous. But they told you loudly and clearly. The most prominent newspaper in America went on the record and said, we're going to try and stop this guy from getting elected 
because we believe he's a threat to democracy. Based on what? Well, I mean, just based on our liberal worldview, based on the 90% of journalists who are liberals. And the, the absurdity of that, to never evaluate, to never try and understand, why is this guy so popular in flyover? I mean, why despite 91? I mean, to say this out loud, Democrats, the guy has 91 indictments, multiple trials in store, and he's the odds-on favorite to be president. What does that say? Not about the Trump electorate, because there are more Americans today that say they'll vote for Donald Trump. And we're trying to put those Americans on trial. Well, you know how those Americans are. They're racist and bigoted and homophobic and Islamophobic. No, you've got no clue who we are. You have no interest in who we are. You ran the game. You were in control until you weren't. And you're not in control. If the media was in control like they perceive themselves to be, Trump would be at 30%, running fourth in a six-person primary. It's almost like the stronger the resistance to Trump gets, the stronger the support for Trump becomes. The ones that are trying to antagonize Trump and the Trump voter are actually the ones that keep him resuscitated. They're keeping him in the game. I mean, they tried since 2016. The media and a lot of these allied forces, organized forces, they've tried to drive a wedge. And, and, it, and it's interesting to me, when the liberal can't drive that wedge between Trump and the Trump voter, then the Trump voter's all of a sudden the problem. I mean, that, that's hilarious to me. I mean, the Trump voter's the problem. Well, the minority of Americans are telling the majority of Americans you're the problem. Because right now, Trump's leading Biden in the polls. So there are more Americans today that say, I'd rather have Donald Trump as my president than Joe Biden. And the liberal media and liberal activists are saying, well, you know how those Trump voters are. Well, I mean, it's more Americans. There are more Americans who consider themselves Trump supporters than Biden supporters today. Now, there's a lot of game to be played. Who knows how this uh, plays out? I don't. Rev doesn't. I mean, none of us do. We speculate. We imagine. We predict. We try to better understand. But nobody knows where we end up in, uh, in November of next year. But as we sit today, this morning, there are more Americans who say, I would rather Donald Trump be my president than Joe Biden. And the very people that have tried to convince you not to be a Trump supporter, I think have convinced you it's probably in your best interest to be a Trump supporter. That's the hilarious part of this. I mean, that's the part that just, these folks are normally a little better educated, but they think a little more of their opinions. They're a little smarter and, and, and more fluent. And, and the masses have said, I don't trust you anymore, man. I don't believe you. I don't particularly like you. I know you don't like me, so I kind of don't like you much at all. And it's, it's a political phenomenon is what it is. And it would be so interesting if it were fairly covered. But it really, I'll tell you what, it would probably be less effective if it were fairly covered. And the reason that is so intense is the people know it's not being fairly covered. Well, what is the line in Oliver Anthony's song? They don't think you know, but I know that you do. That's a prophetic line. They don't think you know, but I know that you do. The liberals don't believe that we understand how insulting they are to Trump and his base. And his base is, is, is what, a third of America? But his voters are half of America. They don't think you know, but I know that you do. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Good morning, Jim. You're on. Hey, good morning. Uh, the, the problem is, though, Ken, if, if 
they were to do an analysis of why we think the way they do, the, that we think the way we do, um, they would actually have to look in the mirror uh, and come to grips with, uh, <clears throat> with what they've become. But you were asking the question earlier, if uh, we didn't do all this quantitative easing, how much would um, X product cost or what would X salary be? Uh, I want to take that further. If we didn't do all the quantitative easing, where would our culture be? Would we have um, a culture filled with people putting pronouns in their um, in their bios, or the Air Force forcing uh, young men to put the pronouns in their their signatures on their email? Um, would we be filled with these people making money off of Twitter um, uh, or TikTok, uh, encouraging our children to do uh, god awful things? So. It's so much more than what you're asking. Now, you're asking the right question, but again, where would our culture be uh, if we didn't quantitatively? Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Well, I mean, money gives power, right? I mean, money is the answer. Now, what's the question? Why was Texas A&M able to make a coaching change? Because they got the money. I mean, if Clemson or South Carolina felt Jimbo Fisher was failing his coach, they could get rid of him. I mean, they'd be stuck with him. You can't drum up $80 million to get rid of uh, of said coach. So what would government, the, the influence government has is bought and paid for. And, and the more government spends, the more influence it acquires, right? I mean, the more dependent some people become, um, the more, well, uh, not dependent would be a bad word. But for some, it's, it's an absolute dependence. For other, it would be, hey, I built this business based on government intervening or government involvement or government intrusion I don't need government to stop being what they are. I don't need government to stop doing what they're doing. How many places in our economy does that touch? Nearly all. I mean, there's certain things about government. I, I, the best example I can give is during the last ARPA money, the American Rescue Plan, I knew it was absurd. I mean, I said to myself, wow, I mean, the economy's recovering, and we're going to spend another $2 trillion that we don't have? I mean, we're just going to infuse that much liquidity in an economy already amped up and running too hot. Um, but but it, I remember hearing one of the Democrats say, as part of this, we want to lower Medicare. I mean, we know Medicare is the driver of the debt. But as part of this, we want to lower Medicare eligibility age from 65 to 60. Well, guess what? All of a sudden, that's knocking on my door. I'm not as opposed to ARPA <laughs> as I was. I mean, I know it doesn't make any sense, and I know it creates all enormous financial carnage on the other side but it hit home to me and i'm thinking about okay that's an insurance payment i don't have to pay i can go buy me a new car a new truck you know where i'm headed uh, we're, it, 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 that's what government does it, it plays or preys upon the self-preservationist in all of us and if government can give josh a little of this and rev a little of that and get a little bit of this all of a sudden those conservatives aren't quite as conservative as they were those libertarians aren't quite as libertarian as they were why well i mean I remember running for lieutenant governor. A lady came to me and said, um, I don't want government in my Medicare. <laughs> right. Too late for that. Yeah. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. couple of callers are there. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Hey, Joe, you're on. Yeah, good morning, guys. You know, the funny thing about Democrats is they don't ever reduce prices like they claim. They just subsidize them more. <laughs> that's that's one of the biggest problems, and they want to control everything we do from cradle to grave. 
every moment. They want to tell you what to do. That's why they don't like Trump. Trump will give us freedom to make our own decisions. That's we have freedom of choice from the beginning of time. I mean, look at Biden just went out to the Stellantis car manufacturer somewhere out there and celebrated the opening of the factory that they shut down. Now, how is that a victory? You shut it down, now you're going to celebrate opening it back up? It's amazing. I talked to Jeff and Williams Saturday. Not the actual Jeff or the actual Williams, but I, I, I talked to one guy and he said, Oh, yeah, I'm voting for Biden all the way. I got an 8.7% pay raise in my Social Security check. I said, well, do you know why you got 8.7%? Because inflation went up, because government spending too much money. Oh, but I got 8.7%. Well, if that's what you vote on, that's fine. And then later on, when I went to Walmart, I talked to Jeff. And he said, yeah, they're, they're, they're going after Hunter Biden for, for nothing. And I said, well, you think them going after Trump for nobody being harmed and nobody being hurt for him borrowing money that he paid back and these banks made millions of dollars off of him? Well, he's just he's just a crook. And I'm going, oh, well, okay. But talking about when we went off the gold standard, that's when everything went nuts. I, I did some research. There's about 50,000 tons of gold in the world. And right now, I think the United States might have six, 7,000 tons stuck in Knoxville, maybe. But it would take 100,000 tons for the United States to have. And it would have to be $10,000 a ton just to have $32 trillion in backing. So it's that's out the window. And we've got to refinance $7 trillion worth of treasuries in the next year. So what do you think that's going to do with, with the inflation? We're looking at $1.6 trillion in interest payments in the next year or so. So we're we're digging a hole, and these people think all these pay raises are nice. All that's doing is driving up inflation, and the only one that benefits is the government because they get more taxes to waste and spend on their garbage to tell us what to do every waking minute of the day. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. One of the reasons the left hates Trump so much is he'll fight back. I mean, the left historically, I mean, you know, you, you can you can say to what degree. I mean, we can debate to what degree, but the left controls the media. The left controls academia. I mean, by control, I mean the overwhelming majority of academia is biased to the political left. The overwhelming majority of the American political media is biased to the uh, to the left. And and Trump just I mean he's a he's he's a I mean, he's he's a force of nature, I mean he fights back. I'll never defend Donald Trump on the debt because he never demonstrated an interest in curtailing or curbing our, our spending. He's the king of debt, is what he says. But the one thing that I think people are attracted to Trump is 
I mean, he'll fight back. And the political left has historically said these outlandish things. And, you know, the, the, the Mitt Romneys of the world say, well, I mean, you know, I disagree with them. They're good, decent people. And Trump just know they're, they're, they're evil and wicked and maniacal and, and diabolical. You think I'm bad. I mean, y'all wait, you're kind of like, you think I'm bad. What about these guys? I mean, they're a hundred times worse than I am. And there's no denying the reality. And, and I want to be clear. I have no idea where we end up. I mean, I love those that say, well, I'm sure this will happen. I, I'm not sure anything is going to happen. I don't have any idea how these trials play out. I don't have any idea how, how the primaries play. I don't have any idea if Biden's going to be the nominee or not. But right now, as we speak, the RCP betting averages have Trump clearly, clearly as the front runner. I mean, it's increased about every day in the last 10 days. In fact, Joe Biden today is 30.4%. Donald Trump is 34.4%. That's a four percentage point variance, and that's about as large as it's been. The person really beginning to make a move is Gavin Newsom. I mean, he's at about 11%, and he's not even an announced um, candidate. So, so once again, you can make of it what you choose to make of it. You can like it. You can not like it. You can believe it. You cannot believe it. But the data shows that right now, if we had an election, Donald Trump would get reelected president of the United States. Let's go to the phone. Jeff in Florence, that has to be bad news for you. <laughs> Listen, uh, I put as much stock on that as uh, all the other polls, right? Um, again, Polls don't win you elections. How are those polls conducted? Landlines. Good luck with that. Um, do you know anybody who's got one? About 80% of these polls were not conducted landline, digital and cell phones. Right. And I don't know if you saw the incompetent. Well, you just said that you just said all the I, polls I, were landlines. I mean, they're not. 80% of the polling today is done by digital, online, or, or cell phones. Which polls do you like? I, I think Monmouth does a decent job. I think Quinnipiac sucks. I think um, Rasmussen is too weighted toward the Republicans. I think CBS, YouGov is too weighted to the Democrats. I think the New York Times-Siena poll gave Trump a little more credit than he's due. I think they had about 3% advantage to and Republicans, they and they're, they're adding an intensity factor in. Um, and I think, I mean, the Republicans are a little more enthusiastic but but i don't think it, it's still it's not a three percentage point advantage yeah let, let's just put it this way i think that uh the last uh election cycles going back to 2016 if you guys keep on this track hey no problem i'm, I'm good I, I it doesn't bother me dave <laughs> so okay um let's uh you, you talk about these indictments and you're you're outraged so which ones are bothering you so much that just seem like ridiculous? which ones do you think are legitimate? That would be a better question. I mean, you're the caller. I'm the host. Which which indictments okay. do you think are important and should disqualify someone from being president? I didn't say disqualify. OK, I well, it'd be like, which ones are important. Put them, you guys want to put them on the top of your ticket? Knock yourselves out. You know, I think the moves to remove them from ballots uh, that the states are doing. I, I, could, I don't think that is going to hold up. I don't think it'll stand up. So put them on your ticket. Put them at the head of your ticket. Go for it. Well, I think we're proving um, that's the case. I mean, I think we're doing that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. You should do that. Um, but as far as the indictments go, look, do you dispute that he has? No, you tell me. Stop, stop with the questioning. I want to hear, I wanna hear what indictments you, you believe are, 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 are so important to keep the a guy from being able to run for president again. No, no, no. I, again, none of them, 
understand what I'm saying. None of them should keep them from being your nominee. Okay. Okay. Do we agree on that? Yeah, but I'm 100% agreeing into that. So if, if, if your president is sitting but, in jail. But, but I'm waiting on you to tell me what indictments are so terrible. Documents. The classified documents, no doubt he took them. The government says they can prove they know why he took them. They don't have to, but they can prove, they say, and everybody's due their day in court, they say they can prove he had them. He knew he shouldn't have them. He tried to obstruct them from getting them. And they say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, they're going to give a reason why he took them. So if the government proves that case, should Donald Trump be president? Of course. You believe... Did George W. Bush mishandle classified information? Again... Did Bill Clinton mishandle classified information? You can play whataboutism, but the government didn't come a-knocking, and they didn't say, no, we don't have it. Did Joe Biden mishandle classified information? You're you're doing whataboutism. No, I'm just saying there's a double standard. Part of the intrigue with Trump, I think you would agree, is the belief that there's a double standard. Donald Trump mishandled classified information. I've said that. I think he mishandled classified information. I think he may have obstructed justice. Did did okay. is Donald Trump the only president to be found to have handled handled mishandled classified information? I, I couldn't tell you, but it doesn't matter, does it? Of course it matters. The double standard doesn't matter? To charge one president with mishandling classified information and not the others? I mean that's not a double you're okay with that? Listen, if those presidents tried to hide and obstruct justice, did any of them do that? We don't know. We never investigated. The answer is no. (laughs) How do you know that's the answer, Jeff? How do you know what a president did when he mishandled classified information? You've got this boogeyman in your head, okay, and they're living rent-free in it. No, 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 no. Jeff, 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 let's let's stop right there. Donald Trump owns you. <laughs> you are so consumed by what he's going to do or not do. The, the, the truth is, and we got to talk about it, the truth you is you're scared to death that he's going to be president again. Do you want to rewind the tape? You, 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 are, you are so nervous that he's going to be president again. And that's, I mean, that, I guess therapy for you is to say he's different than all these others. All the others that I mentioned, and you've not answered, did they mishandle class in, classified information or not? I, I'm not saying I, – I just said to you – now, let's, let's be honest. Be intellectually honest. I said to you, it's not disqualifying. Put them on the top of your ticket. Do it. How does that live rent Should Should every, should every president who has been found to have mishandled classified information be indicted? No, Ken. It's what they did with it. So mishandling classified information is okay if you didn't do X, Y, or Z with it. We know it happens with almost every president. And one has been indicted. Because he obstructed, he wouldn't return, and they say they know why he did Well, and, and if, they, if, they, if they know, I'm sure they'll tell us at some point in time. Got to take a break, Jeff. Thank you very much. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. I am on the record. I think Trump mishandled classified information. But I think every president before him did. And there was one set of rules for thee. 
uh, and another or one set of rules for me, another set of rules for for thee. Let's go. That's always been my my problem: the double standard. I mean, Biden's got classified documents in a garage with a Corvette. And, I mean, have we heard a big investigation about that? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe they're investigating. I mean, I'm sure DOJ is getting to the bottom of what happened in that beach house and Hunter Biden living there and a Corvette, kind of an antique Corvette, a classic car in the garage. I mean, it just. Oh, yeah. I'm sure and, they're all over it. And we seem to be far more interested. And, in, um, well, I mean, you know we're more interested. We raided the place with guns at night. <laughs> Right? I mean, we went through Trump's closets. <laughs> um, but we think Joe Biden may have some classified documents at his beach house. Could you give those back, Joe? Meanwhile, grab the guns, guys, and let's go storm Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, uh, that seems just, fair. But, there, but there's no double standard Equal here. treatment under yeah, the law. Yeah, there, there's no sure. double standard. I mean, they're treating Trump just as they would treat anybody else, including the 51 intelligence officers that are concerned that Biden may be a threat to democracy and national security oh, yeah. by, you know, all the money making its way. Remember all that money that made its way from Ukraine and China and Romania into the Trump real estate company. <laughs> Remember that? And then Trump had all these LLCs yeah. and shell companies. Remember that? <laughs> oh yeah. Let's go to the phone, but there's no double standard. Right. They're, they're, they're treating Trump as they do everybody else. Let's go to the phone. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. What do you have to say today, Williams? Hey, uh, man, I was listening to some of Trump. Oh, are we 16 political speech? He said he's not going to lose a, one job. Ain't up losing three million. Joe Biden, in three years, created 15 million jobs, 15.5 million jobs over a three year period of time. And Trump, I saw Trump was um, bragging the other night that he is the one that got rid of abortion. He was the one that got rid of Roe v. Wade. Have a good day. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate that. I'm telling you, when when, when you talk about Biden creating all these jobs, there is a place I got to give Biden credit. Whomever rents mailboxes. I mean, whoever's, I guess the United States Postal Service, I mean, they keep those folks hopping because they've got more mailboxes. I mean, they're in the business of mailboxes. That's what they do. They've got, what, 20 LLCs. They've got 16 mailboxes. That's the business they're in. You can like Trump's business or not. You can say he's, um, you know, he's gone bankrupt two or three times in some of these sordid business deals that he's been involved in, but he puts his name on a building. I mean, there's legitimacy to the business. Um, you don't go to a building you don't own and put your name on it. Hey, Josh, can I put my name on your building? No, that's my building, man. I mean, <laughs> Trump owns the buildings. He owns the property. He has financed loans at certain places and banks um, in the name of operating his business. What does Joe Biden and his family do legitimately in business? That's the concern I think Jeff said last week. Well, I mean, Hunter went to law school. I mean, he went, he went to like, like one of these prestigious law schools and graduated. That makes him an expert on what? On energy? I mean, what, what about Hunter Biden? Okay, he, he's got a degree in law. What, what about that has he taken advantage of? I mean, do you really believe that Hunter Biden, of, of all the lawyers Barisma could have hired, of all the highly rated and highly regarded lawyers in America, they chose Hunter Biden because they felt he was better qualified, better able, more competent, 
to give advice to an energy producing company? I mean, do we really believe that? They're in the business of opening mailboxes. So when Williams says that the Bidens, or Biden in particular, has created 15 million jobs, the Bidens have never created a job. I mean, the government recovered, excuse me, the, the, the economy recovered from COVID. I mean, that's when Biden got elected, and we put a lot of people back to work after they were displaced during COVID. Um, some have gone back, a lot have not. I mean, there's still a lot of people. The biggest competitor in the private sector to a labor force is the government. Some of these subsidies and incentives, and uh, we're, I mean, I, you know, running for office, we, re- we reward non-productivity at the expense of productivity. That's kind of the American way um, today. And, and I, you know, I, I guess Biden is going to run on Bidenomics, and if he does, good luck with that. <laughs> I mean, it really and truly. Out? Well, I mean, even Axelrod and some of these others are saying, hey, stop that now. I mean, don't run on the economy because most, most people don't feel like this economy's in a in a very good place. 843-661-0937. But he's not Trump. And I get it. For some of you, that's good enough. He's not Donald Trump. But who is he? I don't know. What does he stand for? Don't know. Does he have dementia or not? I don't know. But he's not Trump. And that's good enough for some of you. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. I want to go back real quick. If I'm not mistaken, Nikki was called, or Nikki had more Chinese investment in South Carolina from 2011, I mean, I'm thinking about 2011, 2012, 13, 14. There was some survey done. Um, but, but Chinese investment? Yeah, Chinese in- investment. I mean, per, I mean, on a GDP basis, um, Chinese investment added to South Carolina created more economic activity than any other state in America. Um, but if you think about it, guys, and here's the Trump effect or the Trump impact. Donald Trump just didn't change the GOP's perspective on China. Donald Trump changed both political parties' perspective on China. I mean, it was, I mean, it was a, you were recruiting Chinese business to come to America looking for celebrations and ribbon cuttings and ground well, that's true. and groundbreakings. Sure. Both Democrats and Republicans celebrated when a, when a Chinese business. And then Trump shows up, and this is probably the Teal influence more than anything. I mean, I've read a lot about, you know, my, I mean, I, I would be, I guess, a Peel, a Teal acolyte. Um, the reason that Peter Teal got on board with Trump is Trump had this anti-China sentiment tariff saying you can't trust them and they want to be the, the sole and lone geopolitical superpower in the world. And when Trump said those things in the early, early beginnings, it resonated with Teal and Teal has a very unabashed anti-China stance. I mean, he's unapologetic. I mean, he thinks China is anything net good for China is net bad for America. Um, He's less of an anti-globalist. I mean, he would probably be categorized as an anti-globalist, but he's absolutely emphatically anti-China, 100% anti-China. I mean, you're talking about boogeymen and bad guys, and it does better when we have one of those. And I think when Trump early on said some of these negative things about China, they cheat, they manipulate currency. Uh, you know, they, they apply tariffs and we don't. They steal our intellectual property and we sit idly by and let that out. We knew that. I mean, we knew that in 2010, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. But a lot of people were making a lot of money. Some of these Chinese investments were very lucrative. And the insiders were, were getting paid handsomely to negotiate and manage some of these uh, political and business uh, contracts. And Trump says China cheats, China's bad. 
And the America Firster said, yeah, they do, you know, because you're talking about industrial manufacturing and, uh, you know, where the jobs win and some of the labor laws and reality, human rights issues we deal with in America that they didn't have to deal with there. So Trump just didn't reshape the GOP's party's perspective on China. I mean, he reshaped both parties. I mean, it's find somebody in Washington that has something nice to say about China. I mean, it's hard. You can't find anybody today. And that's kind of an overnight phenomenon. And that is really, I mean, as far as policy goes and perspective, that's probably where Trump has been most successful in convincing this antagonism toward uh, the People's Republic of China. Well, the Communist Chinese Party is who drives the train and makes the decisions. Um, but that really goes back to Teal's money, Trump's belief that tariffs were uh, were the way to go. And I, I remember early on when someone would ask me about, so you, you're supporting Trump, you're pro-business, and Trump wants to implement tariffs on China. Do you understand what sort of consequence that could have on our economy? Yeah, I do. Absolutely, I do. And and I, I remember talking with the Club for Growth and some of their candidate recruitment endeavors, and, and I would say about, you know, China and tariffs. And they would say, so you're not pro-business. You're not free enterprise. And I'd say, well, I mean, yeah, but, but I think China's unique. I think China's different. I'm, I'm anti-tariff until we're talking about China. In, in other words, I think our, our rules for commerce and, and transacting commerce around the world are one thing for everybody but China. And there's something different when you deal with, with somebody who wants to replace you as the geopolitical superpower in the world. Let's go to the phone. Tony in Calhoun County listening to WTQS this morning. Hello, Tony, you're on. Yeah, good morning. Um, over the weekend, I was thinking about this, and it's not really on topic. Um, I wonder why Mossad did not see that October 7th attack coming. Um, I have to believe they would, because they're, you know Israel is not a signatory or a party of the Geneva Convention. That allows them to do all kinds of things you know, that more respectable intelligence agencies would do. So how didn't they see it? Or if they did see it, why would it be ignored? Why would Israel want this to have happened? You know, so they could, you know, perform some action. Netanyahu was in trouble politically. Um, they're trying to overdo the Supreme Court because that's really the only check on the government. You know, otherwise Netanyahu would be a dictator. Um, they're trying to lessen the power of the Supreme Court, but by going to war, Netanyahu garners the support of the Israelis. Um, and there's generally not just one reason. Have you ever heard of the Ben-Gurion Canal Project? I have not. Um, Gurion is spelled G-U-R-I-O-N. It's kind of a replacement for the Suez Canal because during the, you know, the 60s wars, um, Egypt shut off the canal access to Israel. So Israel could build their own canal from the Gulf of Aqaba right up to the Mediterranean and the proposed project is is wider, deeper, basically better than the uh, Suez Canal, you know, was built way back in the day. It wouldn't be blocked up by a ship like the Evergreen, you know, stopping traffic forever. Um but it heads up. It cuts across, goes around a mountain range, heads up in the Gev Desert, and it turns north for a considerable distance. It does that because it has to get past the Gaza Strip before it turns northwest of the Mediterranean. So is one of the reasons why they're 
encouraging Hamas to do this is so that they can save billions of dollars and run that Ben-Gurion Canal right straight through Gaza Strip. I just wanted you to look that up and take a look at it. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate that. I mean, there's some theories out there um, that Netanyahu needed this to happen. I mean, it is it's kind of concerning that the nation with the most secure board in the world, and, and you could probably argue Israel has the most secure board in the world, had a surprise attack launch that they didn't see coming. I mean, you know, that that's the beginning of the conspiracy, and I don't have any idea. I'm not privileged any information, but from afar, we've heard how disciplined and regimented the the Israelis are in regards to their border, and to believe they were caught off guard is unbelievable to some. And, and I'm talking about people in the I mean, I'm talking about people in in the business of considering themselves to be somewhat of an expert in that part of the world. I don't think it's a conspiracy to believe that Iran needed conflict. I mean, I don't think that's a conspiracy. I mean, it is a conspiracy to believe that Israel allowed that to happen. They sacrificed some of their own men and women and children um, in the name of keeping Netanyahu more prominent and attacking Gaza. Uh, that That's a conspiracy. Some would believe that. Some would say, oh, stop that. I mean, they're not, you know, I mean, the leader of a nation, a sovereign nation, is not going to intentionally allow an invasion of his sovereign nation and, and innocent people be killed so he can be more powerful or his power can be less diminished or threatened. Uh, that's a conspiracy. But I don't think it's a conspiracy at all to say Iran saw some of the negotiation between Israel and Saudi Arabia, and they saw some of the, um, the peace-minded Muslims in Saudi Arabia honestly and truthfully negotiating with the Jews in Israel about stop killing one another. I mean, that's not a conspiracy to me. I mean, if, if I'm Iran and I am fostering terrorism and I am, let, let's use their, their language, not mine, I'm the head of the snake, and over here I've got a Muslim nation negotiating peace in a, in a believable way with, with the Jews in Israel, that's the last thing I need to happen. So I do believe that Iran accelerating some of the conflict, uh, pouring gasoline on the proverbial fire, I guess would be a good way to define it. That's not a conspiracy. I mean, that, that would be a very reasonable thing to believe. But, but the other is, I mean, that, that would be an absolute conspiracy theory, and some would believe, and, and some would say, no, that, that's just, I can't buy that. But, but I've heard and read that there are some scholars that believe that could have been the impetus uh, for one of the strictest regimes in human history, not doing such a good job at controlling or monitoring or policing or guarding uh, their own border. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning, David. You're on. Hey, good morning. Uh, now, think about this. The Bidens are their artists. I think uh, hunters sell some art. Uh, they're authors. They have book deals. I'm sure they get paid for speaking engagements. Uh, and they're very good board members, whatever, Amtrak, Verisma. But the sad part about that, I call it the industry of politics. Uh, and if these guys like Jeff and Williams don't see that, anyway, Trump has a life outside of politics. So he wrote books, this, that, he has a business. Uh, Ken, did you have the chance to watch some of these Sunday morning shows yesterday? I watched a couple, yeah. I watched about an hour and a half of them. i tell you what, my man. I call it the Sunday morning uh, media storyline. So you got Ohio, Virginia, and then they brought up Kentucky. And I guess Ohio, Virginia, that was all about abortion. 
Uh, now, Kentucky, we play against them on Saturday night. So that might explain why Dave Baker leaves the Vanderbilt game early on Saturday because he wants to be ready for the night show disco on Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Am I right there? <laughs> Hell yeah. It had nothing to do with the rain and the cold. Well, come on, man. You know, you know, it, it was a daytime game, so you didn't get to see the 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 disco. But that's true. Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm thinking about uh, you know they they try to do this thing as, as far as I mean, think about this, Joe Manchin. He's not going to be able to try to defend them. That he he knew he was going to lose to begin with. In 2024, look at the, the, the map for Democrats in 2024 in the Senate. And I'll go into – I'm thinking about Tim. I wish that Tim would have tried to get to Iowa. But I guess – did his money run out, Ken? Yeah. I mean, does that – Yeah, I mean, they had some internals that showed them they were regressing and spending a bunch of money was not going to turn the tide. I mean, that's, I, I've got a buddy who – Works with Tim, and 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 I mean he's pretty. Uh, I mean I trust what he tells me. They they just they didn't see anything encouraging in the data, and they believed making that big buy in Iowa was just wasting money. Okay, because the, the map, I guess the time frame is set up. I think that's January fifteenth. Correct. So correct. Whoever somebody's going to have to have some momentum change, whatnot in that state and. Uh, just last thing, man. Oh, Jimbo, huh? Jimbo's gonna ha- make how much money? What? Seventy-five million dollars. Texas A&M. Yeah, it's nearly eighty million, seventy, almost seventy-seven million dollars to go oh, home. Good Lord, man, and he's he's from Clarksburg, West Virginia. I think uh, uh, I call him Joe Maserati Mansion. He's from like the next county over. Could you imagine Ken growing up? that we would have said, what do you want to do in life? How do you want to make money? Let's go into politics and football coaching. And you'll make more, or the media, you'll make more money than anybody. So anyway, y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. Yeah, I the, still the fi- believe. The fired football coach is the best gig in the well, country. Well, I mean, the thing, but we, we began the show. I, I was giving Rev a hard time about losing his status as, you know, the best fan in the world. He's now a, I'll leave the game early if I don't <laughs> like what's happening because um, he's cold and it's raining. The yeah, game was fine. It was cold and wet. Here, here's what I'll say. Miserable. Rev left the game early. I didn't. I'll just leave it there. Rev left the game early. Okay, that's half Yours the Yours truly um, did not. But, but I the, showed up. The, the story of the weekend in football is in amateur athletics, and college football is still considered, quote, unquote, amateur athletics, a university of higher, edu- of higher learning, paid a, an employee, a football coach, $80 million or nearly $80 million to leave. Now, now we can argue, well, the money's not necessarily coming from here. They've got the 12th Man Foundation. That's some of the uber-wealthy donors at Texas A&M, and they agreed uh, in a calculus. But, but the story of that is, let's stop pretending this is college football. Let's not embarrass ourselves and call the players student athletes. I mean, historically uncompensated performance as part of your higher education experience has been the norm. It's, it's, that's just not the case any longer. It's an embarrassment to the word amateur to call college football, amateur athletics any longer. And I, and anybody that says, well, I'm bothered that the players are getting paid or this quarterback's getting a million dollars. He drives a Mercedes and this, this wide receiver got, you know, a half million dollars and he's only caught 12 passes. 
a football coach over the weekend got paid nearly $80 million in the process of getting fired. I'm sorry. That's just, I mean, the, the, the sport was so broken for so long that the pendulum is going to swing uh, back, back in a crazy, crazy direction. I mean, you're talking about a rubber band being stretched to the ultimate. I mean, they, you know, the, the player never got paid, and the coaches were making just unbelievable amounts of money. The universities were raking in unbelievable amounts of money. And now that the kid, now that the kid, the performer, is, is getting a certain cut of that compensation or that largesse, uh, we're, we're all offended. I, I'm not saying it's bad or good. I, you know, Texas A&M does what Texas A&M can do. Um, they're one of the few universities that could swallow an $80 million or nearly $80 million um, buyout. But I think the, I mean, where the hammer dropped this weekend is let's stop pretending it's uh, amateur athletics. Let's stop pretending, you know, to give the good old college try. I mean, this is full-blown professional sports. The coaches are played like professional coaches. Uh, now the players, to some degree, are paid like professional players. Um, the universities are still raking in tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's not. Uh, now, now, I'll make a prediction. I text with a buddy of mine yesterday. I think it falls apart. I mean, I think it collapses because I think eventually, I mean, I don't know how many wealthy people there are that, that want to win in college football, make that pro. There, there's a Boone Pickens. There's obviously the 12th man foundation in, in A&M, but, but are there 80,000 or 85,000 Gamecock or Tiger fans that are willing to stroke those kind of checks to stay in that fast lane? to keep up with Texas and Texas A&M. I think you're going to get to donor fatigue. I think donors are already beginning to kind of get fatigued about, wow, you came to see me last year about giving X number of dollars for a football operations building and an indoor practice facility. And now you need more to pay players. What are you doing with all the money you got now? And and I just think we're getting to a point that donor fatigue will end up creating somewhat of a, I don't know, a reshuffling of the deck chairs on the Titanic that is college athletics take a break back in a few it's, there's kind of an interesting story that's that's beginning to gain a little traction remember how many times have we said over the air that joe biden bought a home owned by the duponts that would have been back in the 80s or 90s the washington post on thursday had what i'd consider to be kind of an interesting piece i read a little bit of it but they were trying to explore this connection between biden's and the duponts and they went back to 2000, I think 1999, 2000, somewhere around in there. Um, Joe Biden got voted into as a member of the Firestone Golf Club. And the Firestone Golf Club is, it was founded by one of the DuPont heiresses. Uh, I mean, that, that's the chemical company, EI DuPont, Demures or whatever. Uh, had a big prominent uh, uh, presence in in, uh, in the PD region for a long, long time. I don't know how many people in my hometown, uh, the husband worked at DuPont, and that was kind of the, the best job you could get. You know, working at DuPont was a really, really um, a good job. My did. Yeah. I mean, it was a iconic, but still is an mm-hmm. iconic American company. But the, the Washington Post, and that's kind of interesting that they would do this because they spend so much of their time on the Trump organization, I, I guess, in the name of impartiality and fairness, they felt obligated to, to kind of go down that road. But um, but there's this 
you know, you got this political figure who have historically aligned themselves with working class values, lunch pail, Joe and whatnot. Yet he was a member of the Firestone Golf Club, which was the ultimate symbol of prestige and power in the state of Delaware. Um, anybody associated with the DuPonts was, you know, in the elite category as, uh, as Delaware goes. But they're, they're trying to find out whether or not they went back and looked at his income and, and you know, um, did they did, did the DuPonts allow Joe Biden to become a member bypassing the membership fee, the partnership fee is what it was called. I don't have any idea why they're going down this road. I mean, it doesn't, unless there's a lot more there, there. Uh, I mean, I, I believe that Joe Biden is part of the most corrupt president we've elected in modern American history. I believe that. I mean, I, you know, I think Jimmy Carter was a good man and a bad president. I think Joe Biden's a bad president. I mean, I think Carter was a decent and moral and ethical man. I think he was wrong about everything, but I think you can be good and decent and moral and wrong about every about everything. Um, I think Joe Biden is just wrong about everything. I think he's a lousy president. I think the economy is on his watch. It's, it's interesting how Williams will call in and talk about all these jobs created. He gets a, the lowest ever approval rating on the economy, so there's a disconnect here. I mean, if Williams believes he's doing great on the economy and the New York Times believes he's doing great on the economy, do a better job of selling to the American public because they think he sucks <laughs> on the economy. It might be a little Trump derangement syndrome well, I mean, to play but, with. But, I mean, his numbers are like 20% on the economy. Oh, I know. I mean, only 20% of Americans approve. I mean, half the country's Democrats. That means over half the Democrats thinks he sucks on, uh, on managing the economy. It's, it's kind of interesting. They're focusing on this, this. I mean, it's a substantial partnership fee. From what I've read, it's a couple of hundred thousand dollars to become a member. It would be a membership fee or an orient. What about orientation fee to become a member of um, that? They do talk a little bit about in in the Washington Post article that they they looked into this. The FBI did in uh, in two thousand seven. I have no idea how significantly they looked into this or not. But it seems to me that Joe Biden has always been looking for the next deal. A guy that's not real, real adept at making money. I mean, let's be honest. He's not, he doesn't impress you the kind of guy. Josh, I'll ask you a question. If you had a business and looking for a CEO, would Joe Biden make your short list? Nope. I mean, there, there's nothing about him to ever suggest he was the kind of guy you want to have in charge of a private enterprise. Um, and and it, it, would be, it would be quite the accomplishment for someone like Biden to fall into good graces with the DuPonts, unless there's more to the story. And, and I don't know what the more, and maybe that's what the Washington Post is trying to pursue. Is there more to this story? Uh, he bought a home, remember? A mansion. I mean, they've got a picture of it here in the Washington Post. There it is, Ref. Come look at it. Really? I, want, I want you to validate. Um, pretty nice. Oh, that's right? beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's spectacular. Yeah, good for him. It's something like Taylor Swift would live in. Yeah. Uh, wow. It's called um, a gorgeous, enormous mansion um, built by, the, by a member of the DuPont family in Greenville, Delaware. Uh, and he named it the station. It's where he ran his first unsuccessful 1988 presidential campaign. He sold it for $1.2 million in 1996 and bought uh, another piece of property. Um, I, the Biden DuPont connection, um, raises questions about some of the influences, s some of the favors, uh, reciprocation, you know, you know, quid pro quo. 
um, in some of these elite circles. It's just I don't have any idea why. And, and name. why the Washington Post? Well, I mean, now. That, that's interesting yeah. to me. Uh, unless the Post has gotten the memo from Obama saying this guy can't win, mm-hmm. let's begin, you know, doing what we've got to do to convince him um, that this is not his time or his time has come and gone. Um, just, just kind of interesting to me. And you can Google the Washington Post, Joe Biden, Dupont, and I'm sure the story, and you can actually get three or five free stories before you have to pay to get behind their uh, their paywall. And they go into great specificity. I mean, they get they get in the weeds about um, what the Duponts did for Biden and what Biden may or may not have done. Uh, why would you allow? I mean, if you're a Dupont heiress and you've got this exclusive country club. Why would you let a guy not pay the membership fee, so to speak? I mean, they call it a partnership fee. It is substantial. Why would you not let him? Because uh, there's no record of him paying that partnership fee. That's kind of what the Washington Post is getting at. And that he didn't report that he didn't. I mean, you become a member. Everybody's got to pay a partnership fee. Joe Biden doesn't. So if Joe Biden doesn't have to pay a partnership fee, you're not looking. I mean, it's not like you're, you're short on the who's who of Delaware. I mean, you're a DuPont. You build a golf course or a golf club. I mean, I got to believe that everybody that did pay the partnership would be in the, the click, so to speak, as big as the click is in, in Delaware. I mean, not like Pamplico and the click in Pamplico, but I mean, it would be, it'd be something to be a part of, right? <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you think of the click, you think of LA, Manhattan and Pamplico. Pamplico. Yeah. I mean, that would be the most clickish places, <laughs> places on, on earth. Anyway, um, the intersection of finance, government. 20 years ago, 25 maybe years ago, I've always believed that there's some, I mean, the DuPonts are really smart, very wealthy. Joe Biden was not either. So you kind of find a stooge in a game. And does he advance political agendas in favor of DuPont? Again, the question comes down to, you know, if he received this benefit, why? What were they buying and what did they get? Well, I mean, I understand. And who is we? If you're, if you're not the DuPonts and you want some notoriety brought to your club, you let the senator in. You know, you let the you let the governor in. You let, But that gives you a little bang. There's a little bam. There's a little, you know, wow, news story. But if you're the DuPonts, the last thing you need is notoriety. Probably the last thing you want is notoriety. You do things on the download. Yeah, some of that exclusivity is kind of more, mysti- more mystical if it's done behind that gate and long driveway. But Biden became a member. There's no record of him paying the partnership fee. And the Washington Post wants to know what were the DuPonts up to? And what did Joe Biden do for the DuPonts to get that membership fee waived? And it's not, you know, being a member at the local, I mean, it's not the the Starbucks gift card club. I mean, this would be a fairly significant, and you start rubbing shoulders with a who's who of, uh, of Delaware. And Delaware is an interesting state, guys. Why? Because Delaware's home to a lot of the credit card companies. I mean, the, the majority of credit card companies call Delaware home base. They've got some legislation. I'll try to better favorable understand. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, legislation rules. Yeah, if you're in the in the credit card business, it's more advantageous, much more advantageous to be located in Delaware than it would be, you know, another. I mean, you would imagine the credit card companies be located in New York or California. One of these major hubs, finance hubs, uh, but they're in Delaware, and Wilmington, Delaware is home to Dupont. So I, I've just always wondered 
how Joe has continually lived above his obvious means. I mean, he's making a couple of hundred grand a year. He's buying homes owned by the DuPonts and beach homes. And I mean, he's just living a big life, having a, having a good life. His son's jetting around, you know, um, not, not the role model you would want your kid um, to be. So just, just a lot of concerns and he questions. granddaughters with LLCs and bank accounts yeah. that money appears in. I and mean, they're, they're moving big. money around, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Uh, Comer's going to get to the bottom of this. We'll try to touch on that tomorrow. Um, but Jim Comer, some of these subpoenas of bank records, um, I think he's already, I think Russell Fry said, I don't think, I know Russell said Friday that there will be kind of a deposition given by Jim and Hunter Biden. I got to believe they'll plead the fifth. On the advice of my counsel, I'm here to plead the fifth, and they won't answer any questions. I don't know where you go from there um, to get divulge information about what we have investigated and found. In other words, if you're Jim or Hunter Biden, you're going to be advised to not say anything. But what if the committee presents information that is very revealing and and, and very incriminating? Do you do you defend yourself then? I don't know. I don't have any idea. But we, you know, are sp- still spending all of our time on the 91 indictments that include obstruction of justice and mishandling classified information when we may or may not have a president who's taking bribes from foreign governments. The media doesn't seem to be as interested in that, or do they? Because I predicted the moment the Democrats and media believe, they're one of the same, the moment they get the memo that Biden can't beat Trump, he's useless to them. I mean, he's, he's, you know, dumb old Joe again, and they'll out with the old, in with the new, which you'll, you know, they've got a problem with. Is it it Kamala Harris or... Gavin Newsom. I was going to say, how are the old in with the Newsom? Yeah, end with the, um, I, I could be. <laughs> but then you alienate the African-American vote by jumping over a female African-American yeah. to, to pick the white guy. Yeah, that's normally the Republicans doing that, right? I mean, aren't they the racist <laughs> and chauvinistic <laughs> and misogynist? Yeah. Okay, oh, that's the other side, <laughs> jumping over the, the black lady to get to the white guy. Interesting. The dilemma for them. Yeah, yeah. Their problem, well, not they'll ours. They'll figure it out. We got enough. <laughs> Good for them. Take take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Cocky Mike, good morning. Hey, man. Ken Ard, you lie. You lie. You liar. And I'm going to call you out on it right now. I heard when you were talking about, I think the guy was talking about the Israel Canal versus the Suez Canal. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what he was talking about? I, I caught the end of it. I kind of figured what he said. And you said something that, that just made me pick the phone up. You said, I've never heard of a world leader that would intentionally let his country be overrun solely for his own power. What in the hell do you think Joe Biden's been doing for the last two and a half years? <laughs> you knew that was a lie. As soon as it came out of your mouth, you said, oh, you know what, Joe Biden's been doing that too. Well, what, what I said, I think, is if someone believes that, they certainly got to believe in conspiracy theories. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Isn't that right? I mean, that's all the, the Republican Party is, just a bunch of... Conspiracy theories yet to be proven. Just give us another year or so. Are you right uh, about that, Dave? Dave, don't don't you let that liar convince you that you're not still. You're talking about Fairweather Dave. You're talking about Fairweather <laughs> fan <laughs> Dave. I'm talking about the guy that wasn't sitting in his lounge chair in Pauly's Island watching the game. See, that's, that's enough. You're talking about the guy. That's enough of you. To, yeah. <laughs> Later, guys. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike, for that. defending me a little bit. Yes. Well, I mean, 
Did you did did you or did you not leave early? Uh, I I did leave okay. early. I didn't. I day. didn't. That's right. Okay. Yeah, I showed up too. Where were you? I was there. Where Where were you? I was there at the uh, you know when Cocky made the grand entrance. Yeah, I was there. Did there, they, where's did, there? Did they use the cute little train again? No, they didn't. Okay, have yeah. they trashed the train? Well, just because they wanted to preserve the field because the field was so wet. Well, trash the train. The train sucks. I'm sorry, but the train sucks. What's wrong with the it, train? It looks, it's just dumb. I mean, it's stupid. I mean, you, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> that's the story for another day. We'll get into that at some point in time. I think I said, and leave it to Mike to chat. I think what I said was to believe that a leader would allow his country to be intentionally invaded and innocent people lose their lives has to kind of be categorized a conspiracy. Now, do I believe in conspiracy theories? Yeah, uh, probably more than I ever have uh, because they historically recently have come true. This is a conspiracy theory. Yeah. The last two we came up with have come true. So what's to doubt that this one does not uh, as well? 843-661-0937. Let's take the call, then we'll do some trivia. Jamie, good morning. You're on. Good morning. Hey, Rev, let me ask you something. Are your seats under an overhang like somebody we know <laughs> where you don't get rained on? <laughs> they are not. <laughs> they are right out well, there in the I open. Mean, Right out there in the open. And, I mean, if you're protected and not getting rained on, you'd stay longer, wouldn't you? Yeah, probably so. I think it was pretty nice in some of those areas. It looked nice from where I was sitting. I was looking up there and saying, oh, man, must be nice dry and warm in that suite. Well, 51 years of watching that junk, they owe me a roof over my head is what I'll say. (laughs) Thank you, you, J.M. Yeah, 51 years of going to Willie B and watching that nonsense, they owe at least a roof over my head and a hot dog at halftime. Um, <laughs> but they don't give that stuff away. I'll probably Rev knows that. Oh, yes. They don't give you the roof over your head, nor the hot dog at halftime. <laughs> you pay dearly. You pay dearly uh, for that. Eight four three. And of course, the irony is you're talking about that. They actually played okay. I know they were playing against Vanderbilt, who is not good, but. They played a good game. Well, I mean, and they you got to yeah, and you play that well against Kentucky. Got to play a little better against Kentucky. Uh, you win that one. I, I thought we said four week, two weeks ago. It's a four game homestand. You win one at a time. I mean, Jacksonville State was a struggle, but it was a win. Vanderbilt was a kind of a, an impressive win against a bad team, but it's a win. You're playing a team with very similar talent to you, Kentucky, at home, night game, Williams Bryce Stadium. They're two point favorites, I think. It'll be a pick 'em by game time. You figure out a way to kind of win that one, no matter what it looks like, and you got Clemson coming. We'll find out today at about one what time the Clemson game will be. I had a buddy of mine from Clemson say, because uh, I, I said, you coming to the game next week? I said, I- I'll be your host. I, you know, I'll take care of you. He said, if it's a night game, I'm not. I said, well, I said, I, I, made, a, I made a vow 25 years ago. I'll never go back to Williams-Brice at night. Never go back to Williams-Brice at night. And I get it, because <laughs> it gets a bit rambunctious. Um because people have libations, and they tend to have all day to get, as they say in Baton Rouge, you ready? Lathered up. Lathered up. Yeah, when them Cajuns get lathered up, it's another animal in Baton Rouge. Well, Columbia can be a little bit like that. You give them Gamecock fans a chance to get lathered up, they tend to take you up on the uh, on the option. But, yeah, 51 years, I want to get a roof over my head and a hot dog at halftime. 843-661-0937, time for our Takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia. The correct answer wins you a six-pack of Pepsi product. Couple of takes Mondays to make Fridays t-shirts. Talking about Delaware, 
and where Joe Biden and the DuPonts run the organized crime family. <laughs> One's got all the money. One had some of the power. Um, so they're connected at the hip. What is the state capital of Delaware? First state in America. What is the capital of Delaware? 843-661-0937. First correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirt. What is the capital of Delaware? Do we have a call? Uh, nope. Okay, we the, don't. There, there we go. Uh, okay, we got Hi. one now. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? Wilmington. Nope. That's the biggest city in Delaware, not the capital of Delaware. Hi, you're on the air. You know the answer? Dover. You're right. Dover, Delaware, home of the racetrack. If you're a NASCAR fan, you know Dover is the capital of, uh, of Delaware. Who's this and where are you calling from? There's Robin of Florence. Okay, Robin, sit tight. I'll get you back to No Shot Josh. You'll get all your pertinent information, and we'll get you a six-pack of Pepsi product, a couple of takes Mondays to make Friday's T-shirts. Um, the Celsius are now not only in the 12-ounce cans, they're in the 16-ounce cans, mm. 270 grams of caffeine that'll get you stirring in the morning. Uh, thank you to the callers. We started slow. We It seems like we always do on Monday. Monday. But we kind of um, we hit our stride. You folks obviously stimulate the show and conversation by your participation. But um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday this week, politics only Monday and Tuesday next week. We're doing our um, simulcast show from Rivals with the Bad Boy of Sports Radio and our ESP and affiliate. We'll dedicate it to the Clemson-Carolina rivalry. I think Phil Kornblut will join us. Jason Priester will be with us. Um, Ron DeSantis is calling us tomorrow morning, and we moved the time to 8.20, as they, they called and changed yeah. it. So 8.20 tomorrow morning, Ron DeSantis is scheduled to be on the show with yeah, us. Yeah, 8.20 tomorrow, make sure you're joining in. Um, and DeSantis will try to breathe some life in his campaign in the PD region of South Carolina. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.